the place not to be is in Babylon the Great. Right. Right. That's the full-blown, matured uh, expression of Thyatira. Okay. So uh, Babylon the Great gets the strongest judgment right. in any uh, known uh, in any place in the Bible. He gets the strongest judgment, a fourfold judgment, double unto her double. Right, and then that's where it says, because uh, 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 strong is the Lord God who judges her. Right. Well, Thyatira is uh, is that part of uh, uh, church history that takes us through what we call uh, the Dark Ages in uh, uh, academic history. Okay, and so this was a period of darkness. And the Word of God was, uh, like Tim said, basically uh, closed, shut down. And for teaching, people had traditional things. The dogma of the uh, uh, Roman church became to be the acceptable thing. Illiteracy, illiteracy was rampant. Very few people could read. The Bible especially was not put into print. Not, not that a lot of other things were because there was no printing press. But uh, what manuscripts they had and so forth, these were uh, not made available. Uh, they would, uh, if they were, they were put into Latin, which the, which the normal people of Europe, if they could read, could not read Latin. And so Latin was the official language, and every other tongue was unofficial, and it was called the vulgar tongue. And we still use this term today sometimes. Is uh, you know there's the the pure language Latin, uh, and then there's the vulgar languages. Uh, and uh, that the word vulgar doesn't quite have the same definition now as it did then. But it, what it meant was it was a barbaric language. It was right. not the official language. And so everybody that was not uh, gifted in Latin, which uh, was nearly everybody in the civilized world at that time had no access to the Word of God. It was just in a manuscript here and in a manuscript there and a, a very little thing, a very little exposure to the Word of God occurred at that time. You see, that led, for, uh, that uh, was there for a period of 1,000 years. People were living in, in uh, illiterate darkness right. concerning the Bible, concerning the things of God, concerning God's revelation, which brought a cloud of darkness over the whole thing and clamped everybody's mind down. Whatever capacity men had for thinking, understanding, uh, developing uh, uh, things, uh, it affected everything. There wasn't anything invented to speak of. There wasn't anything developed in any kind of sense that uh, we would think that mankind would make progress in. Because why? Because everything at that time was under this cloud of religion which forbids you to uh, probe into any unknown area uh, and it kept everybody basically in, uh, in a kind of a jail, okay? An intellectual and especially a spiritual jail. But the jail included all aspects of life because uh, religion became the dominating factor in human society, in politics, in countries, in nations, in kings, in everything. Everybody was under this great big uh, uh, cloud of, uh, of superstitious religion. Right. They didn't understand it, but you know you fear what you don't understand. Right. And because they couldn't, and because they didn't know the truth, they couldn't throw it off. Right. 
okay? And unable to throw it off, they had to live that way. And, uh, and, it, and wow. this went on for basically a millennium right. of living in this kind of state where you just simply could not conceive of having a personal, original thought uh, under some kind of fear that that would uh, 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 be a of a damnation to you and you could suffer eternal consequences because you were uh, doing something against uh, God which made their concept of God a very fearful, trembling, uh, awesome and uh, angry type of God and uh, do anything and boy you, you know you've had it this kind of thing. Right. Okay so now you see this thing went on for a long time wow. and a thousand years and this and so there had to have something God of course couldn't tolerate this. Uh, Satan had done all of this and God, at a certain point in history, after uh, uh, roughly a thousand years, He came in to have a reaction. From this point on, you see, in Sardis and then in Philadelphia, we'll see God's reaction. Okay, Sardis is the reaction to Thyatira. And Philadelphia is the reaction to both. Okay? Uh, so what we're talking about here is Sardis that started in the early part of the 16th century and goes until the coming of Christ. Okay. Now uh, Sardis is on earth today. It's prevailing. It has now become larger than Thyatira. But it's, it's split off into so many different lines and uh, groups and denominations and so forth that you have to gather them all together which they don't do but you would have to gather them all together and uh, count noses for them to be larger than the uh, Roman Catholic Church the RCC okay but still uh, on this earth there's nothing not even close uh, to match the prolific uh, massive enormous size power and influence of the RCC. Okay, this holds especially true in Europe, which is its home base. Uh, uh, in North America, it's partly true in South America and or anything below the United States. Okay, now today the church in Sardis we have to get into because this is God's reaction. Okay, He was not going to let Thyatira cruise on for uh, eternity, okay? No, he had to come. he's got an eternal purpose to fulfill and now he has to start a a a uh, series and I mean a long and laborious series of reactions against uh, things that are false, pagan, religious uh, and sometimes even scriptural yet dead. And so this is the message to the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis, Sardis literally means remainder or remains. This is the Reformation plucking out of fallen Thyatira the things which are of God and, and grabbing them so that, they, so that the remains of what God had in the beginning when Paul and Peter and John were on the earth and wrote the epistles, etc., that he could recover this. This is the remainder, you see. And it also means the restoration. It's the bringing back into, into a realization in their mind of what was the original, written down, revealed truth of God. So you have uh, the remains taking care uh, 
to restore that which God originally intended. This is what Sardis means. You see, it's not, it's, it's God's uh, wisdom that uh, there's this name called Sardis, that there was a city called Sardis, and that this just prophetically fits into church history in this kind of uh, uh, sequential uh, development, okay? Sardis means the remainder. This is a minority. This is, this is the protesting people that became known as the Protestants coming out uh, of Thyatira, which symbolizes the Roman church, okay? And it, it comes out to protest, and their protest is, is in a way of a minority to take care of the remaining things that are there and that have not yet died. Okay, because given time, eventually paganism would have taken over everything, and there would have been not even uh, leaven mixed with the truth. It would have just been all leaven plus no truth. Okay, this was a, this is this is a trend. The Bible was locked away; nobody could read it. It's in Latin. Even it was against the religious law of Rome to read it if you were not a clergy person, a priest, uh, a bishop, something like that. Okay, so you couldn't read it. Okay. Uh, plus, then somebody else's word came in. The word of man right. began to have authority with uh, the canons of Scripture. Okay, this was this is against this is against everything. This is this is uh, having no discernment between what word is of God and what word is of man. You see, and when that happens, uh, confusion, which is what Babylon means, is the end product. And today, there's nothing there but confusion. You don't know what is the word of God. You don't know what is the word of man. There had to be a reaction against this. And so this is called the Reformation, the, uh, the reaction, the beginning of God getting his bride, which, is the, which will be the church in Philadelphia. But he has to go through Sardis. Philadelphia does not just pop out of Thyatira. Philadelphia is hammered out through Sardis and furthered and up through Philadelphia. If you, if you want to understand Philadelphia, you have to know both Thyatira and Sardis to see how God is moving toward his ultimate goal in getting Philadelphia. So what we're doing here is not just talking about a little bit of the past. What we're doing here is tracing God's thorough, but uh, uh, slow but thorough movement toward the uh, final goal of getting the bride of Christ, which will be Philadelphia, to bring him back. Philadelphia will be there when the Lord comes back, and Philadelphia will be the spiritual factor that brings the Lord back. There will be other worldly factors, but they follow the spiritual factor that brings the Lord back. This is uh, Philadelphia. Sardis is the prelude to Philadelphia. Without Sardis, you cannot have Philadelphia. You see, Philadelphia stands on the shoulders of every positive return to the truth and the experience of spiritual things that have been literally beaten out of the Word of God for the last five centuries. Point by point by point by point. Slow. So slow. Sometimes you read history and it's so slow you just wonder, where was their mind? But actually, if...
would have been back there at the same time, you see, we would wonder if we could have even have been able to follow in that minority. It, wow. it, it's, it's scary. The only thing that encourages me now is that uh, we're in a minority, and uh, we made it in this age. Maybe we would have made it in that age, too, you see. Anyway, God is sovereign, and he calls people to do what? Come back, come back, come back, come back. To what? The beginning, to the Word of God, to the original revelation, okay? This is what Sardis is. This is a reformation, coming back, all the time coming back. But you see, to come, in, to come back from a thousand years of darkness, of mixture, of all kind of things come in, to separate light from darkness, you see, truth from error, to do all the separation, it took 500 years of time to do all this kind of separating out, you see. And Philadelphia uh, ultimately was part of that separation. Uh, it separated itself to a certain extent. It actually could go no further. Philadelphia came in and did the final thorough and complete separation to produce uh, the pure revelation that would open uh, the door for the kingdom. The keys, uh, the keys uh, uh, of David were given to the church right. in Philadelphia right. uh, to bring in the kingdom. Okay? Now, if you'll understand this, then we can uh, see how the Lord wrote to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Okay? So could we all read these passages, or this little section, these six verses together, okay? And to the messenger of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are living, and you are dead. Become watchful and establish the things which remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your works completed before my God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If therefore you will not watch, I will come as a thief, and you shall by no means know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. But he who overcomes, he shall be clothed in white garments, and I will by no means erase his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good. Okay. And now, uh, to understand this epistle written in Revelation chapter 3 to this ch uh, church and to this section of church history and to us, because it says, He who has an ear, let him hear. Right? Uh, we have to have some backdrop of what was happening during these centuries so that you can understand this epistle. So right now, I'm not going to try to interpret this epistle yet. We'll do this in our meeting right before supper. Okay? And then uh, we're changing today. But we're, uh, <laughs> we're going to go up through lunch. And then we're going to have our long break after, for lunch and then after that. And then we're going to have a meeting before supper. And then we'll have a meeting after supper. So we'll have... It'll be a little bit more split that, that way. Anyway, we're going to do it that way. So tonight we'll start with interpreting this 
But if, if we can get this morning what happened, what developed, what brought things to a certain point so that we understand why this epistle was written and we understand and we can be brought to the very brink of Philadelphia being raised up, this will be a great thing. You see, now I want to tell you just frankly, young people, uh, you, you, you don't realize how fortunate you are to get a view of God's move since His resurrection. Okay, you don't realize that. This, this, kind of, this stuff is tucked away in uh, archives and libraries. It, it, would take you, it would take you a long time. Unless you were full-time given to do this kind of stuff, you would never figure, figure it out. Okay? Uh, but if we can just have some simple meeting like this, go over the highlights, you can catch the main things, you see, and uh, you will actually you could actually have more light than some authentic church historians because though they have read volumes upon volumes, they didn't have the light so clearly that they could interpret everything, okay? This is the heritage that we get to have, you see, uh, in this day and age that we understand what was happening and what God was trying to accomplish what he got and where man failed him and what floated to the surface as positive and what sank to the bottom as negative that Philadelphia never had to pick up. You see? So Philadelphia is standing on the shoulders of all the positive things that floated to the surface during the period of the Reformation. It went so far... The Reformation did, and it could go no further. Philadelphia caught it at that point and, and, and then blew it up into... I mean, the Revelation just suddenly went from, you know, a, a, a small line to a massive thing, and it just, it just uh, lights went off that uh, uh, brought in huge waves of Revelation. And this characterizes Philadelphia, okay? But they could never have occurred unless the ground had been prepared by Sardis. And Sardis wouldn't have occurred unless there would have been something to react against called Thyatira. Now do you understand? Okay, with that in mind, we can see uh, the first one is, of course, that this is the church, Roman numeral one, this is the church in Reformation. And the outstanding characteristic is A, that it is a church coming back to the Bible. Okay, I want you to realize this. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. The Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. Not what man says, not what you say, not what the Pope says, not what Dr. So-and-so says, not what anybody says. Is what does God say? Okay, return to the Bible. Open the Bible. The, the opening of the Bible to the common average believer was a trademark, a hallmark of the Reformation. Okay? Uh, and we'll see as we go along the pains that it took for that to occur. But that is a hallmark of the whole thing. The Bible was open to the common person. Okay? And so people, literally, many times in a one-on-one -on -one situation, that means them and their Bible, 
got in contact with the living God through Christ and experienced his salvation. Why? Because they had a Bible they could read and they knew that God could speak to them personally if they read his word. This is a huge thing. If you realize that that kind of mentality not only did not exist, but it was condemned and you could get in serious uh, trouble with the with the uh, religious powers of the dark ages. Okay? We, we don't realize, you see, uh, I wish some of you could take about six months and just soak yourself in history to get a feel of how things work. Not even just church history, but even the good books on secular history, you find out, you find out a lot of how people's mentality, their thought processes worked during that time. Okay? This is why uh, if you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand history. Okay? You have to have some knowledge uh, of just what's going on. Otherwise, you could not you could not understand certain things, right? So you have to have some basic knowledge. That doesn't mean you have to have a history major. You just need to read, you just need to read a few appropriate books and you catch it. You see, I could recommend some good authors that would give you good feelings of the way things were in certain centuries. You see, and you get it. You get the religious aspects. You get all kind of aspects. You see, it's it's a very enlightening. And then the good church histories, of course, emphasize what was happening in the religious uh, theater of things. Okay, and this really, of course, is what we're trying to bring out because this relates to truth. Okay, so saints, listen, the Bible being opened is a big, big thing. We'll see this as we go on. Then uh, B is that Sardis does two things. It, it reacts against Thyatira, as I've mentioned, and it also retains Thyatira. So it reacts and retains. Did you ever think of that? Yeah. Okay, look at this Look at this diagram up here. Uh, uh, this is one of the few diagrams I've ever seen that when it was all done looked like a circus tent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. As I uh, said, it began here. <laughs> See, if I could draw a clown over here for the Dark Ages, we'd have it complete. <laughs> okay, okay. It, it started in Babel, and then with the dispersion in Babel, all the things went off into different areas. And around what we call the Holy Land is where Baal entered, uh, just like you mentioned, Jezebel was Ethbaal, the daughter of Baal. And in the Bible, Baal and Ashtaroth, these are the two sun gods that came in as leaven to the children of Israel, took them away into idolatry, and God had to judge all of that in a severe way. Okay, but anyway, these things went out all over culture. They even went to some of the cultures that the Roman Empire didn't incorporate. Like there's quite a few Chinese saints here. See, the Roman Empire had nothing to do with you and so forth. However, however... The scattering of the people of Babel did, and so the concepts there took on other names, other terminologies, but the picture of the Madonna, the mother and the child, and the worship of the sun god, etc., still was in your culture, even though it wasn't. It never got consolidated into the Roman uh, Empire, but it was still there. The missionaries that went to China and Japan, they all saw the ancient pictures predating the ones they themselves did. 
you see. They, they were so surprised by this because Babel fed the whole earth into this from this one source. And it wasn't like they just picked up Babel. They picked up the seeds of Babel and they developed it along their own lines. That's why when Rome conquered any country, they had to incorporate the people who were steeped in their own religious ways into and try to amalgamate them into one empire and therefore they had to incorporate the the brand of Babylon that took on its own characteristics and its own names and some peculiarities and they had to incorporate that in, in, uh, into one all-inclusive uh, worldwide religion and this is why Babylon is, is not just Babel but it's called Babylon the Great, the Great Thing. In Matthew it goes from a little herb which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be life to his believers to a great tree. This uh, mutation, this something uh, muted that should not have occurred. But you see it occurred because uh, the thing was blown up and, and the enemy came in and did something by putting leaven in all of this. But it did get consolidated. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church had to, had to be a collection of so many things bound together, you see, and if you go to different countries where Roman Catholicism prevails, you'll find also a different brand of it. Okay, Don't think it's the same in every place. See, there's a brand of it in Mexico. There's a brand of it uh, in Argentina. There's a brand of it in Sweden. There's a brand of it in the USA. There's another brand of it in Japan, believe it or not. It all has certain little brands to it, but it, even there... Uh, you see, it, it, because it takes in, it emphasizes the things of the culture in which it resides. Okay? Now, uh, you see how it got amalgamated? When the Reformation started and the protesting started, which produced the Protestants, and they started to come out, which is what we'll start to emphasize uh, in a moment, they started to come out, and their coming out was not was not like this. They didn't come out in oneness. They came out somewhat like the things came in. They came out in dispersion. Here's a line of the Reformation. Here's another line of the Reformation. Here's a line of the Reformation. And so all of the things of the Reformation came out and diverged because certain aspects of the truth which were being recovered were emphasized more strongly. And so this one emphasizes one aspect that's uh, somewhat different from this, though they both may be very uh, similar on some things of the recovery of the Bible truth. But nevertheless, the emphasis was not the same, and so they would uh, separate or denominate themselves one from another. And this this went on. There's no way. We, there's not room in this whole building to draw the number of lines that have developed in the last four, five hundred years. Mostly based on recovered truth from the Bible, if you can believe that. Okay. The thing is. In, in reacting against this uh, mixture here, the reaction against it was not thorough, or I should say not total. This is why in this uh, epistle it says, I have not found your works complete. This means they didn't go all the way back to the beginning of the New Testament truth. 
So you see uh, here, like here is one, let's say, let's say uh, this one came way out. And let's say this one came only this far out of Babylon. And say this one came this far, and here's one that barely got out. You see, and here's another one that uh, got a good distance. So there's all kind of variations in Protestantism about how far away they got from Thyatira. Do you, do you follow me? Some got very far away. We'll see this, especially when we get to Philadelphia. We'll see, we'll trace its development too. It just didn't start overnight. It, it's traceable. Okay? But you can see that in, in its reaction, the reaction occurred on many different levels, on many different scales. And therefore, it is also, it retains elements. And this is true today. Sardis today is the Reformed Church that reacted, originally reacted against Thyatira, but today retains the elements to varying degrees of Thyatira to this very moment. Okay, do you all, are you all following me so far? Okay, now, if, this, if you understand this, then we can get on with how the Reformation came and how these lines came out Okay, and how God began to hammer out the truth point by point by point, you see, during this period of time and uh, so forth. Now, the, before we can start talking about men of God, we have, to, we have to loosen up the ground. Okay, and this is uh, why I put number two in here. There's a preparation for the Reformation. Without these things occurring, then the Reformation men would not have had a way that would have been uh, so, uh, so useful or so prevailing as it turned out to be. Okay, now, uh, in order to overcome the darkness and the uh, total uh, superstitious way of life of our, uh, some things had to occur. A, uh, I have down here is the migration of the Greeks because the Turkish Empire y'all have heard of the Ottoman Turks and so forth they were taking over all of that area of land swinging around the Mediterranean and encroaching upon Greece and the fear of that uh, caused the uh, learned people of Greece because they were not bound nearly so much as other parts of Europe under the uh, umbrella of the Roman church and so these uh, uh, Greek people who were rich in heritage in knowledge and wisdom you know they go they predate Christ and go way back and uh, uh, very scholarly people they had the most advanced philosophies rules uh, political uh, arrangements of any other country they were they were way ahead of other places well they began to filter all across Europe and with them they brought ideas that other people had never even thought of and were afraid to think of. And so this started to gradually open the mind of these Europeans, okay? Then, number two, there were the rise in Europe of literary men. Uh, it suddenly became uh, acceptable to uh, be, be uh, intelligent. And so literary people began not to be uh, uh, condemned or put in prison or, or uh, uh, so forth, but education began to 
uh, gain esteem slowly, slowly, but it did start to develop so that uh, to, to get an education and, and to become uh, somebody that was a literary person began to have some esteem to it and so certain people delved into this and this began to have an effect which affected uh, church history just like it affected the period we know as the Renaissance, okay? As things began to blossom, uh, men's minds began to loosen up, they began to throw off certain uh, fears, certain superstitions, they began to laugh again. Believe it or not, for, for, for centuries, it was very uncommon to hear laughter. Everybody was too, 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 too afraid they would make a mistake. Laugh about the wrong thing. And then somebody that was a clergy person in a robe would come along and condemn them to uh, purgatory. Very, very weird. But if you would have lived back then, you would have been just like that. You see, everybody was like that. Then the literary men began to come up and they, they would question things. You say this, but why? This question of why became an acceptable question for the first time in centuries. Why? Why? What's, from where did that come? What, based on what? See? Okay, you get it. Then we had the rise of some famous universities where these literary men taught. They taught all these uh, uh, real bright young men, these young minds, mostly the uh, females weren't too uh, into literacy or education at that point. They were still, you know, kind of uh, uh, in uh, however you'd like to uh, express it. <laughs> They, they, it was it was uh, the young men that became quite uh, quite strong. The uh, women's liberation had not occurred yet. Not occurred yet. <laughs> you had not been liberated yet. Okay. <laughs> but you will be in the future. I mean, you have been. I mean, from here, you get liberated, right? So the women got liberated. First they were bound, then they were liberated, and then they were over liberated. <laughs> Now we got one big mess on our hand, right? Okay. See, they, they wanted to be equal with men. They wanted to be equal with men. I know what some of you are thinking is the gall of me sitting up here saying this. See, this means you got a, you still got part of the journey in you. Yeah, want to be equal with men. Of course, God didn't think much of this idea, right? Because He created man first, and 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 uh, you know, believe it or not, woman is for man. Did you realize that? And man is for God. Think, just think about. It. I'm not saying. I'm not asking for opinions. Just think about it. <laughs> woman is for man, and man is for God. Yeah. <laughs> Judy, did you hear that? <laughs> uh, she she knows that. She knows that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, anyway, you can be for man. You can be for man. Don't misunderstand. You can be for man, but you can also know the truth. 
Okay, you're not you're not restricted from truth. You're not restricted from experience, and so forth. <clears throat> but neither are in God's eyes. Neither are you the same. Okay. Otherwise, why is man? Why man and woman? Why didn't we just have man? I mean, you see, the, the God has His way. Okay, God has His way. If you you think if you don't think there's any difference, you really you really are off. Okay, you're off. Okay. If one of you sisters can beat one brother. You get your strongest sister, and you, you find the weakest brother here, and you see who can win an arm wrestling match. Uh, there'll be a clear difference. See, a clear difference. One is a man, one is a woman. No, you, I'll take the bet. I'll take the bet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, famous universities. Uh, at this time, especially in England, two were raised up, which are still operable today. That was Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, they collected all the bright young men and see these ideas begin to get in their mind. They would tell others, others would tell others, and this kind of stuff started to uh, spread throughout Europe, including the University of Paris. We should put these three were the main leading universities of the time. Okay, the most ancient, the most prestigious, and holding their prestige even down till today. And these were cranking out educated, learned, bright, intelligent young men, not according to today's standards, because education has advanced so much. Uh, Fifty years ago is not even according to today's standard, okay? But their mind was freed, and they started to spread this freed-up mind to uh, other people. Slowly but surely, this started to uh, take hold, okay, in, in Europe. Then uh, we have this uh, very extraordinary man called Erasmus who became famous throughout all of Europe. And this was because he was so scholarly. Uh, probably he was not a Christian. It's a close call. But even though we have no evidence that he made a clear-cut confession, actually he died as a Roman Catholic. Uh, the, one of the greatest things he did is that he translated the Bible into the original Greek and so his Greek New Testament was the beginning of the recovery of religious truth, okay, throughout the whole area. So Erasmus became, he was a renowned person. He was more famous than uh, <clears throat> some of the great men of history. At that time, the name Erasmus stood for intellectual advancement versus uh, superstition and stagnation. Okay, then we have another factor that really was preparing Europe for the Reformation, and that's called the princess, the princesses of the of Europe or of the people. Europe was not like today. Europe today is a is a system of countries. Okay, uh, most of y'all may not be too aware of all of these countries, but. Uh, they've, they, they, they've had a lot of switching and a lot of changing, okay? Uh, some of them are ancient countries. Some of them are big. Some of them are uh, countries that no longer exist. Uh, throughout the last couple thousand years, there have been a lot of changes. But the face of Europe at the time of the Reformation, 
very much is very much different than it is today. When we say Germany then in the day of Martin Luther, we're talking about a vast uh, area, a confederacy. When we talk about uh, France, it's different than today. When we talk about Switzerland especially, it's not just a little old country. It represents a real kingpin of Europe at that time. No doubt Rome and its, its uh, surrounding areas. But you see, it was divided up into, it wasn't like these big uh, monolithic states today. They couldn't pull that off. They didn't have a way. Even their communications transfer, all of this uh, forbade this kind of, kind of tight political thing. So there were, it was still somewhat in a feudal system type thing kings and princesses over certain areas of land that they could control and protect. Okay? The princesses of Europe were the ones who suffered the most under the domination of Rome. They were under the kingship of the Pope. He was the head of the church and he was the head of the state. He was the head of the world. And so everything they did was subject to being vetoed, overturned, or condemned by the papacy at Rome. And this, they all chafed under this kind of thing, right? So uh, these princesses, of course, wanted to be the, the prince in their domain. They wanted to be the king in their domain, right? And so they begin to struggle, but no, none, not one of them uh, could, and they knew they could not, overcome uh, by themselves the power of this huge worldwide thing that had developed over a thousand years called Thyatira. So they sat there, but they sat there very restless, very unhappy, and waiting, hoping something would happen. Mostly it didn't in their lifetime. But as time, as time went on, this, this kind of uh, desire that something would happen. This is why when the Reformation finally broke out, the reason it was not smashed to the ground by the authority of the Roman church immediately was because of right at that time looking for this very spark the princesses of Europe rose up and offered them military protection if they would speak boldly against Rome which would cause them to get the freedom of power they wanted. Do you follow that? So the princesses were raised up and became very, very crucial in the Reformation process, and no doubt this was also God's sovereignty. Without them, the Reformers would have been slaughtered. Okay, uh, then uh, F is the restlessness of the people. The people, because of, of, uh, of the beginnings of literacy, the beginnings of, of intelligence, the beginnings of inquiry, the beginnings of asking why, when, how, for what reason, wh where did this come from, uh, what will be the end of it, how do we know for sure, all of these kind of things started to come in and people began to be quite restless. Maybe we're not, maybe we're wrong. Just this question. I mean, it would be just the slightest, and then everybody would be scared to death. Could it be uh, that we might not have to do it this way? Oh, no, 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 don't even ask that. Don't, you see? But these little things began to get in. You see? So the people became to be uh, quite restless, okay? And that made them 
uh, prepared them, put them in a state or a frame of mind that when the reformers stepped forward, they got an ear from the people. They were willing to listen. They were prepared to listen, okay? Then, uh, G is preoccupation of, of war with the Turks. As I mentioned, the Ottoman Turks, I think most of you under, have a vision in your mind. Can't you see uh, the Mediterranean Sea with, with Europe, uh, uh, the Mideast, and the northern coast of Africa surrounding? Don't you all, all under, you know this much geography, don't you? you do, please tell me you do. Don't say you don't. Know. Okay. Well, we'll just... Okay. Uh, this war with the Turks <laughs> uh, occupied Rome a lot because you see if the Turks gained more ground they came in not only with military might but they had a different political system but most of all they had a different religion and that religion scared Rome to death and so Rome was all the time in trying to look out over all of its religious domain it always had to keep one eye cocked to the east to see how far the Turks were advancing where would they stop so they were preoccupied there and Germany being the leading location of the Reformation where Luther was located was governed by uh, the king whose name was Charles. He became a king when he was quite young, uh, still in his teens. He was an extraordinary man, uh, sharp, eager, full of energy, very intelligent, but he was th thoroughly fifth-generation soaked Catholic, and he would, he would condemn to death anybody. He was there, and he would have slaughtered all the reformers with no compunction at all, except he himself had to take care of this Turkish problem. And so he never got free of that. For 30 years, the Lord kept his hands occupied with the Turks, and he could never deal with the likes of Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, etc. That was really God's idea. Then, at this time also, precisely at this time, the paper and printing press came to the forefront. Saints, nobody can explain this. The printing press was not developed by religious people. Secular people developed this for financial gain, just like today somebody would invent something and go into business. It was exactly the same. In fact, the first things they printed were the Bible. Okay? But they did it for gain. Because all Bibles were copied by hand at that time. And they were worth a lot of money if they were because they were copied very carefully and precisely by monks in hand. It would take something like uh, maybe two years to do one Bible. So it was worth a lot of money. Well, they printed it, you see, and but they didn't tell them it was done by hand. I mean, by printing press. And so they sold them as if they were done by hand. For several, for some period of time, they really got a lot of money until their secret was discovered. It was very guarded secret, the printing press. Then finally, you know, it was finally got out in the open. And, uh, you know, Gutenberg was the one who really established the printing press. From that point on, printing presses just uh, went 
wherever civilization was. And printers became to be one of the most outstanding professions you could be in at that time. It's like today being someone who uh, really knows uh, microchips. Their thing was to know the printing press. And they developed the movable type printing press. You see. Uh, later we'll see in the hands of godly men the printing press was used as a mighty, mighty instrument of the Reformation. In fact, some of the ones who were martyred were printers, not theologians, not preachers, but printers because they were doing more damage to Thyatira than in their dissemination of the truth than any other people. And not only that, but at the same time, paper, which was not available as we know paper made out of wood product. Uh, mostly paper was made out of cloth, right? And this was really no way to do anything on a mass scale. So when, when they could make paper in its cruder form then out of wood pulp, this happened at the same time with the printing press and on and on and on. And this happened right, and I mean, simultaneous with the Reformation God had this little machine set up that could crank it out, all the truth, and, and it flew all over civilization. Then there's also the discovery of the New World. At the time of the beginning, for the first 50, 60, 100 years of the Reformation, you would think not too much, this was not too important. But Martin Luther was nine years old when Christopher Columbus discovered the New, new World. And we will see, as we trace these histories uh, and go through them, we will see that there had to be a new world if, if the Reformation was going to progress any further at all. Okay? Because the new world was the escape, the escape valve for people who could no longer put up with a partial Reformation. You see, and we'll get into this later. Then finally, flagrant atrocities of Rome. Even the common people woke up to some degree and realized that the, that, that the clergy that has been established by Rome is getting away with murder. Okay, I don't mean literal murder, but I also mean that in some cases. But I mean they were getting away with the worst violations, unrighteousness, falsehood, uh, graft, all immorality, all kinds of things. These things, even the common people with, with not much knowledge but with a good conscience, they would realize this is not right. But they couldn't do anything by themselves. That's why they waited for some people to rise up and speak boldly and when they did, they flocked around them and the Reformation took off like a rocket. Okay? Now, uh, three, there are some forerunners in the Reformation and uh, these four runners are now we're starting into into people who were men of God. Okay, and I have two down here: uh, John uh, uh, Wycliffe of England and uh, John Huss of Bohemia. But these are only representatives. These are more uh, famous or well-known people of many 
who were the forerunners, who were men who got their hands on a Bible, who uh, got uh, the, who heard the Word of God and who rose up and who, who brought other people, in some cases whole communities and so forth, to the Lord. These were the forerunners and they always got persecution because the Reformation had not been in yet. So these are the forerunners. You know, uh, one of the companies has a, a slogan that says it's just slightly ahead of its time. Uh, is it Panasonic? Just slightly ahead of its time. Anyway, one of the, one of the uh, high-tech companies. These forerunners were uh, not slightly, they were a century or two ahead of their time. This is why they couldn't make it. Okay? But they still were in a, in, in a spiritual sense just uh, uh, limbering up the whole uh, population of Europe to be prepared. And they paid a stiff price. But uh, you can believe me, they, they walked in white. They did not defile their garments. And they will walk, with, walk in white with the Lord. They were true overcomers in Sardis. Okay. Uh, uh, Wycliffe, whose name is still famous today because uh, uh, there's a the the you know the Wycliffe Bible translators who still are quite active today in translating the Bible into very uh, very uh, obscure languages. They've translated the Bible, I believe, by now near into every language. I don't think there's one that you can't. Maybe there's a few dialect dialects that are tangents to some unknown foreign real obscure language but basically they've mainly through uh, these this translation society they've translated the Bible into virtually every tongue uh, John Wycliffe was uh, the first point was he was a, he, he was in England and he was a teacher and a translator and uh, he translated the Bible and he put it into English now there weren't many copies and the printing press wasn't available. But he did get some Bibles out, and this was a big factor in preparing the ground. Okay, And through him, he began to get a, some followers. And these followers, uh, I'm not, I think after his death, they were named Lollards. But these followers, these Lollards, were people who got to who received the basic rudiments of the truth of the gospel and were saved and were somewhat uh, little communities in several parts of England. And they held on and kept their identity through several centuries. Okay? And were more or less kind of the forerunners of the Puritans. Okay? Then in Bohemia was John Huss. And, uh, of course, this guy was very bold. He threw a lot of dust up in the air, and he spoke out boldly against Rome. He spoke out boldly for the Bible. He brought the truth of salvation to uh, hundreds of people there in Bohemia and, uh, and uh, had a following, which, of course, took his last name after he was martyred. He was, he was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church and so forth. But his followers, known as the Hussites, uh, lived on, kept the kept the truth. What you know, what limited amount they got, they held on to it, and they were also persecuted very severely. But they clung, they held the faith, and they existed there in Bohemia. And these were forerunners of many groups that would cluster all over Europe 
and rise up, you see. These Hussites, uh, down through history, have finally found their way to the New World, which is to them, which is now America. And they, th they then uh, can be traced to today's group called the Amish. These, those were the ancient Hussites. Okay. Okay, these were the forerunners, and as we mentioned, they were ahead of their time. Now, I'm going to start talking now for some period of time about the very vortex, the very heart, the core of the Reformation, and see it really slugged out through the lives of some key people. The most key person being Martin Luther. He was the man of the hour, and without him, the Reformation uh, could not have done, or it could not have, uh, it could not have overcome what it overcame. God raised him up. There's no doubt about it, and uh, with him, some other men in other places at the same time. But he was raised up. He took the heat. He withstood Rome single-handedly. Uh, uh, and uh, he was the one that really sent out the war cry. Others picked it up, as we'll see. But we need to see clearly why we always mention Martin Luther's name, like we stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther. Why? Because he was the one who was a bold person uh, and was used by God to be the spearhead of the Reformation. Right. Okay. It doesn't mean he was the most spiritual. He doesn't mean he was the most anything. What it means is that in God's timing and sovereignty, he selected this young German man to be the point of attack, to overthrow the domination of Rome and release people to the truth of the open Bible. Okay? Now, how are you all doing? Is everybody okay or not? How's your spirit? See, you know, to be a normal person, you need to have three things. You need to have a strong body. See, a healthy body. Or is it? Are you healthy, or are you, you you falling asleep? Come on. I know y'all fool around. Y'all fool around at night, and then you expect to be bright-eyed in the morning. It doesn't work that way. Okay. You need to be healthy in your body. You need to be strong in your soul. And you need to be bright in your spirit. Amen. You bright. You got a bright spirit. Okay. Hang in here. Okay. Now, listen. Listen. This is this is this is why you can even be here today. This is why we can open the Bible and get light out of it because these things occurred. This is not history. This is God's move on earth using certain men to accomplish certain things to get a definite result. Okay? Step by step by step. When you see all of this and you can put it all together and we interpret Revelation 3, 1 through 6, you'll be so clear of what's what and where, where, where we are, where you are, where everybody is. Okay? Okay. Now, 
Martin Luther in Germany. This is critical, very critical. Okay, I already mentioned that he's the centerpiece of the Reformation, so you don't need to figure out that. Okay, let's take his story up with his early education. And uh, his father, who was a coal miner, wanted to pay the price so that one of his sons, named Martin, could get out of the doldrums of manual labor and become a literary person. And uh, Martin, being a bright young uh, guy, he wanted him to have the best, so he worked, uh, what we would say, he worked two shifts to uh, get the extra money so that uh, he could send Martin to school. Back then, there weren't public schools. You had to... You either went into the coal mines if you lived in his part of Europe or you escaped with money to go to some kind of, to live somewhere and be taught by some educated persons, okay? Well, that's what happened to Martin and he was educated and being very, uh, he was almost, he was just, uh, he was, uh, just kind of uh, knowledge just consumed him. The, the desire for knowledge just consumed him. He was this was something really also of God. He just he just was uh, not such a knowledgeable person. Anyway, he was a doctor of philosophy by age 20. So he was really into it. And and don't think he this was. I mean, uh, he got his the hard way. He just didn't read a few cliff notes and take the exam, okay? I mean, you, had to, you, had, you had to really dig it out back in those days, okay? And you didn't just read some library books. You sat at the feet of the person. You traveled to where that person lived, and you got everything from that learned person. And then you would travel to where some other learned person, and you got it that way, and uh, so forth. Anyway, he got his doctor's ring by the time he was 20. Just to tell you a little bit what kind of person he was, okay? He was a stuff, a stuff, a tough, <laughs> tough, uh, stubborn German, and and uh, God needed just this kind of person: intelligent, tough, and stubborn, and bold. Then, uh, after this time, in his early in his early twenties, uh, I have anxiety of soul and the thunderstorm. Uh, what this means here is that at this period, he became very, very much alarmed through his knowledge about his soul and uh, what would happen to him. He did, he had terrific fears of hell and purgatory. Terrific fears. He had been so indoctrinated with these that it, that it was scary to him. He was just educated enough to know uh, the the facts on some of these things, and so he was he was scared to death. He became very anxious, very very uh, very fearful. The whole atmosphere was one of of foreboding doom. Okay, and he he was subjected to that. And he couldn't do anything about it. Well, at this time in his life, he was trapped right outside the city during a, a very violent storm uh, where lightning was crashing. Uh, uh, I mean, it must have been some storm because all he could do was just lay flat on the ground. And uh, he was terrified. He couldn't budge. He was 
He just knew this was the end of his life. And he, he also knew that if his life ended then, that according to his own realizations, that he would just he'd be eternally damned and this scared this just paralyzed him to the uttermost. At that point, he made a he t- he made a uh, bargain with God, and he said if he would get him out of this storm alive, that he would enter into the local convent and become a monk for the rest of his life and dedicate himself to the service of the uh, priesthood. Well, the storm passed, and he and he dried out, and and he entered next year. It says uh, the convent of of Wittenberg, and so in Wittenberg, where his home uh, base was for his education, he entered into the local convent. Everybody said, "You're crazy." I mean, you're a doctor of philosophy. You teach. You see, you, you teach, you, I mean, you're, you, you've got it all, now you just throw it all. You know, entering into a convent then, you renounced everything. He had to give him his doctor's ring. Everything. You just get nothing. Even you can't keep your hair. You lose everything. Okay? <laughs> and not only that, but because he was uh, a special case, a real doctor, a real learned person, they went to links to humiliate him. They, they sent him out to beg in the community where he had an excellent reputation to beg for food and beg for... And so they, they, uh, he was humiliated substantially. Anyway, he entered the convent. Then, uh, besides that, all the stuff that was going on there is he entered into the life of the convent, uh, totally isolated from society and so forth. One day in one of the, uh, uh, one of the obscure rooms of the, of the convent, he found a copy of the Bible, which he had never seen in his whole life. One copy. And he could not believe his eyes that there was a copy of the Bible in that convent. No one told him there was a copy of the Bible there. He, he found that Bible and he started to read and read, being the type of person he was, just, just, yeah, just in this kind of, you know, to, I mean, he wanted to have knowledge anyway, but to know things concerning God at this point in his life consumed him. And so he read and read and read and read and read and read. Okay, he became a person that was just like this. Okay, well, that was uh, that was good for his getting knowledge of the Bible, but it did not it did not sh- he, he he did not see how to be reconciled to God. He did not see how to be saved. Okay. So next, it's it's works, illness, and despair. The next phase of his life in that convent is described by these three words. Works being that he outdid every monk that ever was there and ever would hope to be in, in holiness, devoutness, works, uh, uh, abstaining, asceticism, you name it. He did it. And none of it released him from the fear that he was still unrighteous before a righteous God. Nothing could solve his problem. Even he was kind of like a joke. Everybody, what's you know, you know, back then, if you became a clergy person, you, 
you were immune from nearly everything. You were a special person. If anybody f- messed with you at all, they, that meant they were messing with God. So no one would mess with you. You got everything. Even you lived off the taxes of the people of the land who supported that, and they dare not fudge on their taxes. They had to pay them. You see, so you, it, was, it, was, it was a free life. And you didn't have to study. They, they, really, just, they really just did their little jobs and uh, maintained the religious order of the day. Okay? Uh, there was not much sacrifice involved unless you really wanted it, which some did. And Luther was one of those. So he paid the price, lived at, you know, his bedroom was more like a cell. I mean, you can imagine the austerity of that time, okay? And so he lived this way. He lived this way. And all the time, his spirits were sinking. Uh, He got so, at times, the more he read, the worse he got. Uh, And and if if works could have saved anybody, it would have saved Martin Luther. Because he did everything. Okay? Hours on his knees, reciting this, doing that. He did it all. Nothing. Nothing helped out. At this time, if, if he, he got so ill, he was right on the verge of death, mainly because he couldn't eat, drink, or sleep because he was, he was this, full of this much anxiety, and he had no relief whatsoever. And if he would have died right then, later in his life, he said, if he had died right then, he said, I would have been, my trust would have been in, uh, in the Virgin Mary for the... Uh, you know, salvation of my soul. And so this was his state, you see. Uh, the things he went through in that convent, uh, the things, let me put it this way, they were so extreme in him, so, uh, I don't know, so unusual that you can see that even that part was of God because it was really preparing him for a, a, a quest for the truth. <laughs> you see. Okay. Uh, then after this, enter uh, a person who became his friend for life who was Father Stoppitz, an, an elderly uh, clergyman in the Roman church who as an as a rare exception had found peace with God through the merit of Christ and not through human works now it was not really that clear with him but he had this little basic realization therefore he had peace you see and he would visit Luther and he would try to put this into Luther and Luther would understand it somewhat, but he couldn't grasp it totally. Okay, but anyway, throughout later life, these two became quite close, and Luther would refer back to him many times in letters for advice and things like that. In fact, Luther helped him later to enter into much more truth. Okay, then there's then at this point in his experience, there's this unknown monk. In other words, I don't have a name for him. But he was a a very elderly monk. And when Luther was at his lowest and could not even leave his room in the monastery, this older monk 
came, and he also was an exception, and he had been justified, and he realized it was based on the forgiveness of Christ and not on what you could do. You, you don't earn it, uh, you receive it. It was very simple. So <clears throat> the next part, it says, uh, Thy sins be forgiven thee. In their conversations about the Bible, this old monk would talk about this section of the Scripture where the Lord told this person, you know, who had been so sinful. He, and he related the story. And he, he said, what the Lord told this person was, Thy sins be forgiven thee. See, thy sins be forgiven thee. And this word from this old monk penetrated into Luther's mind and opened it up. And he saw that it was a matter of Christ's forgiveness and not human effort. And at that point, he got relief. And he, the clouds left his mind. So you could say this is his conversion. But you also have to say this is a very weak conversion. Okay? What he got was relief. He had no other knowledge at all and no other realization at all. That's why the next point is that he was still loyal to Rome. Everything else he continued to do except he got out of the cloud of human works and got into receiving forgiveness of sins. Okay? Luther's experience of Christ really began in a little bitty seed form and just grew as time went on. Okay? Then uh, enter Frederick the Wise, who was the Prince of Saxony. And uh, this became, he became Luther's personal guardian. He was, uh, he, he was the connection with Luther that kept Luther protected all his life. And when he died, Luther was by that time an old man as well. And uh, throughout all that time, if anybody started to make advances toward Luther, they first had to deal with Frederick. And Frederick was no small prince. Okay? Frederick the Wise, he was a very open man. Uh, uh, historical evidences do support him having been truly converted to Christ. He was not a, a lusty, ambitious type prince. He was very meek, very gentle, and, and, and in all probability, a definite Christian. Okay. Anyway, uh, at this time, he started the University of Wittenberg, uh, built around Martin Luther and this other professor, and they started their own university, which became a very good one and a very prominent one there in that part of Germany. And Luther taught and preached and this and that for a profitable five years. He just was uh, having a big time. He got out of the convent and got into the university life. Uh, he was a monk and he was a professor. So he left that world. And I'm not going into the whole story, okay? Uh, but I, uh, you, can get, you, you can get his biography and read it if you'd like. You'll get all the details. Uh, but uh, his real joy was teaching. He taught like crazy, and uh, and he w and he began to put into people like other literary people the teachings of of uh, justification by faith. Okay, 
But it wasn't that clear. But it was beginning. He was in the Bible and he was teaching and teaching, and uh, uh, it was things. Things were developing in his own understanding more and more. Okay. Uh, plus, these were getting into other young men's minds, and they were carrying them all over the place. Okay. Then uh, <clears throat> it says Psalms and Romans. The just shall live by faith. It's right here in his teaching at Wittenberg University that he especially centered on two books in the Bible that he went through verse by verse, uh, uh, verse by verse uh, commentary on these two books, Psalms and Romans. And when he got to Romans chapter 1, just that far, verse 17, where it says, The just shall live by faith which is a quote from the Old Testament. It says, The just shall live by faith. This verse was used by the Holy Spirit, and this verse suddenly came out in neon lights. This became, <laughs> this became the verse in his understanding that the, the, the first time that the Lord released him in the, with that old monk that was a kind of a release, but it wasn't that bright. This verse, the just shall live by faith, was a solid, bright revelation to him that shot him totally out of the realm of anything to do with human effort whatsoever and totally relying upon the finished work of Christ for salvation. He saw that so clearly that it was a matter of faith and not by works if you wanted to be justified before God. Right. And that became the cornerstone for the rest of his life. Okay. That was a solid, solid revelation. It's possible he even got saved at that time, but but the the weight of evidence would lend toward what happened there in the monk's cell. But it was just, things were just so mixed up there. It was not that easy to see all, all the things. But this was very definite because he not only saw it, he began to speak it and proclaim it, and it started to go everywhere, okay, at that time. Okay, now, he's doing great. Life is looking good. He's stirring, stirring things up. Uh, he's a very, he was a very bold, almost like a kind of a bellicose type person who just strong. If he had an opinion, he just let it rip. He just overturned this and threw this over. And if he didn't like that, he ditched it. And he, he had an opinion about everything, to tell you the truth. And he'd tell it, he'd tell, he, he was just the kind of person that had to come along at this time. You know, and so anyway, he was like this. But he was, at this point, he was... Now, if you can believe this, he was clear about salvation, but he was 100% given to the Roman priesthood. Now, that's not, they don't seem to connect in our, our mind, but it was very easy for that to be. In fact, it was hard for it to be any other way back then. Then came the charge from the convent that he lived in to... Uh, take a trip to Rome. They had to do something in Rome. So he was the one selected to go to Rome. He took the journey on foot. That's a long walk. To go to Rome. Now you have to realize what he considered Rome was. Rome, to his mind, 
was a city almost almost celestial in nature. <laughs> I mean, the, every step of the journey it was it was one, over one hill. He would he would walk over and he would see Rome, and that was the religious haven of the world. And he expected to see. Uh, something just not that far short of God himself. That was the concept built up about Rome. See, So he made the trip, and of course it was a very uh, faithful journey. Uh, his hopes were rocketing sky high. He was full of anticipation. Uh, the journey was long. It took many months to get there and so forth. And along the way, there were a lot of hardships and uh, and. Uh, anytime you make a trip like that, of course, you'd have a lot of hard. He nearly died once there uh, and so forth. But uh, he made some observations along the way. That's why I put this here. And that is the closer he got to Rome and the more he mingled with his fellow priests and monks and so forth, he noticed the change. Where he came from, uh, the, the point was to live a very... Uh, uh, austere life, a very uh, ascetic type life, denying yourself things, you see, punishing your body. Closer he got to Rome, he noticed how everybody lived more comfortably, more at ease, more luxuriously, I mean the monks and the priests. And life was, life was, uh, I mean he saw things. He saw their lifestyle. Not only was it uh, somewhat, you might say, luxurious, but it was also unrighteous and immoral. And this really disillusioned him. He couldn't figure this out. But anyway, he kept going, kept going to Rome, and he finally arrived in Rome. And when he saw the city of Rome, he was beside himself. He, I mean, he finally got to this place called Rome, the center of where God spoke on earth. And he got there, and outside the gates of the city, he, he literally prostrated himself and kissed the ground. You know, Rome, Rome, you know. It was like that. Little did he know that very shortly his dream was to be shattered. Because Rome's real situation was the worst city on planet Earth. Thyatira's headquarters was the literal Sodom and Gomorrah of the day. And it was led not by the citizens of the city, but by the religious priesthood, especially the Pope. The Pope went around in pageantry like he was Nebuchadnezzar or somebody like that. Instead of, uh, Luther thought he would see the, the example of humility, of the likeness of Christ. Instead, he saw all this uh, wealth, luxury, richness, pageantry, everything but his concept of what he was reading in the, in the Bible. And he became so disillusioned. And he stayed there long enough to see the corruption. And, he, and, and it, it, it shattered him. It shocked him and it shattered him. Okay. That, is, that trip, that time in Rome is what made him into the reformer.
the truth on one side and his his knowing the real situation. So, of course, uh, he saw that. He stayed there a while. I had on the steps here. This is when the famous story, he was told if he would uh, climb up on his knees up this uh, staircase of steps that had been imported from the Holy Land, that he would receive some indulgence, that uh, some sin would be forgiven, something like that. So, you know, he was doing it. And he just got up a few steps, and the Lord just spoke to him. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing here? He said, the just shall live by faith, and you're crawling upstairs on your knees. And I told you, the just shall live by faith. And right then, Martin Luther got up off the stairs and said, forget about this. And he, he left that. He left the stairs. He left Rome. He left the Pope. He left everything, and he headed back to Germany, a new man. Amen. He was totally in the. His mind just cleared out. That whole, that whole. I mean, from from the Pope being the vicar of Christ, he became the he became the Antichrist. And he would. They had correspondence in later years. I mean, he would call him all kind of names. Luther let him have. It. He would write, uh, uh, you know, instead of your most royal highness or you know, so he would write your your you know uh, your most excellent hellishness. <laughs> Something like that, you know. I mean, he was just like that. He, he was. He, he didn't care about it. He got to, I mean, he had had it. He had seen it. And he, in his own conscience, he got clear. And so he went back. And that's why down here it says, back to Germany. Uh, at the next point, back to Germany of the top of the page, a budding troublemaker. Listen, from this point on, his preaching, he just put the acts to the root about the whole system, and he began to preach justification by faith. This got, oh, this started causing a lot of problems. Then, at this very time, uh, the, the uh, papacy sent one of their leading uh, men named Tetzel into the area with his crusade of indulgences. You see, this is where you would purchase indulgences. The wealthier you were, the more money you had to pay. You would get an indulgence. It would free a relative from purgatory. It would free you from something you'd committed. Or it would give you a license to commit something and you had already had a prior indulgence. Okay? So this is all based on money and, and to be raised. When this this was going on, this was going on in the area of Luther. Luther did this. Luther did this before this guy got to Wittenberg in the year 1517. On the cathedral door, he went and nailed the famous 95 theses, charging. <coughs> or I should say challenging the Roman Catholic Church to answer these points or these uh, statements of fact. Counter them, if you can, through Scripture. Ninety-five points that he was in, uh, that he was in total disagreement with, uh, with the dogma of Rome. Okay? And when those theses were nailed in 1517, uh, it's, it's hard for us to, to realize what it was like. But, but this is, I have nothing in modern history to compare it to. It's like somebody, 
just went out here and nailed up, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, George Bush and the rest of the Senate and the House and all the Supreme Court nailed up something and, and it was uh, uh, Americans, we've just shifted our form of government uh, and uh, from now on uh, we're going back and become uh, uh, an anarchy. You know, no, no government. I mean, we, we would just be would be shocked. I mean, the, the news of this would travel so fast, right? Well, that's exactly what happened. I mean, in, four, in about a four weeks, they get, they estimate, the news of these 95 theses had gone throughout Europe. See? And they were being printed and disseminated and on and on and on. And uh, they were going everywhere like crazy. 95, and most of, the most serious charges were against indulgences because this was based on Tetzel's coming visit. Tetzel never even got into the city. <laughs> no, they met him outside and they said, you, you, you have nothing in this city. You are not welcome. I mean, people were waiting. They were waiting for this. And, and they rose up in the city of Wittenberg and they, they absolutely slammed the door. And all the doors of all the areas uh, just started slamming shut in his face. You see, and, and, and he lost all of this, uh, he lost all of this, uh, you know, money and all of his commission. He went back to Rome and had to tell the Pope, this is troublemaker there. He is, he is, you know, something's got to be done about him. And they intended to do it, and they did. They, they, they tried. But anyway, that, those 95 theses were the fuse. That lit the fuse. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You know, you know what Luther's main argument was? Now you think about this. If, if you pay a certain amount of money, you could get a suffering, tormented soul in purgatory out. And if you paid a certain amount, they got out. I mean, you had the assurance that they could leave immediately out of purgatory and go into paradise. That's what they told you. If the sun was right. <laughs> Luther said, Luther said, this means you have the authority to release somebody from purgatory, from suffering and pain and torment. Because that was, you know, that was their whole concept. If you can do this, if you have the authority to do this, why are you waiting on money? Why not out of love for your suffering friends, do you not just release everybody for nothing? Why would you keep somebody there and wait for money to be the point to release them? If you have the authority, why don't you release everybody for nothing? It's a pretty good point, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. Well, at this point, things got, things started rumbling. I cannot describe the rumble and, and the undercurrents that were going on across Europe at this time. And everybody were, were getting these printed copies of uh, these things and, and, and uh, teachings from uh, Luther and preachings were being written down and printed and, and sent everywhere. And uh, uh, it, it, the whole thing started to be an uprising. And, and yet they couldn't deal with these people because Frederick was right there saying, don't, you know, don't touch my boy. You know, he was for him, not only just in a, a selfish way. Frederick honestly loved Luther and he was, he was going to protect him with his life. And he had, he had the strength. 
So uh, at this point, uh, Rome had to do something, so they sent out this famous papal bull. Uh, remember, I told you a bull was not an animal, but it was a it was an official document to condemn Luther's teaching and that he must repent immediately or suffer the consequences. And Luther, being the stubborn German, highly intelligent, and now very strong in the scriptures, and also now having seen the atrocities of Rome, he called a public gathering and he burned that document, which was next to committing you know, I mean that—that that's unheard of. This just, this just inflamed people the more. <laughs> that yes, we can do it. I mean, it was, it was like a revolution. You know, that people were out of their mind. You know, and and God was protecting this sovereignly the whole time. No, nothing. And so this bull was burned. Okay, this brought on a serious crisis. And so uh, the Pope. Uh, demanded that Charles, the emperor of all of, of Germany, convene a diet. A diet is a convocation of all the different uh, uh, provinces or, or uh, states or however the, the, it's divided up. There was a, it was a very vast confederation okay, of areas. And he called for a, a convening or a, a, an assembly of this. That's called a diet. And this was to be held in the city of Worms. Okay? And here, all of these famous people, including the Emperor Charles, were to be there, and they would bring Luther specially for this event. And they would confront him face to face. And everybody knew Luther would be uh, martyred if he went there, but he said, I'm going anyway. He basically said, I'm not afraid of these guys, and I'm going, and you know, God is my helper, this kind of thing. Read, read the biography, you'll, you'll get the whole picture. Anyway, he went there, and the people were just, I mean, all along the way, they just, you know, came out, and it was like a, it was like a war hero coming home. I mean, you know, they're just flocking and throwing things and flowers and, you know, wishing him well. I mean, he was a hero marching to what they thought was his martyrdom. And he went, and uh, finally they were all assembled. You know, it took like six months to get everybody together. And so, uh, in this great hall, they were all there, and and this little monk, you know, had overturned all of of uh, the power of Roman Catholicism, and this was the moment that they were going to reverse it all. And so, they had all of his books on a table, and they brought him in, and they uh, accosted him and condemned him and accused him and so forth. Their main prosecutor was a guy named John of Eck, the guy who lived in infamy. He was really a rascal, and he was his whole mission was just this one thing: is to overthrow, uh, <clears throat> you know, the uh, the heretics. And so he was real rough and, and uh, brusque in his talk. And, uh, you know, he just said, he just confronted Luther and he says, are these your books that contain, I mean, it wasn't a trial, it was just a, a judgment. Do you, do you deny that these are your books? And he, he, he looked at him, he said, no, they're, I can't deny that they are my books. And he said, well, either you repent and recant and burn these books and, and don't teach further 
you see, or, or you open yourself to the punishment of heretics. What do you have to say? And Luther said, it being so serious of a, of a thing involving so many lives, I request uh, a knight to consider my answer. Which was a little bit, uh, kind of like he was weakening a little bit. Uh, probably was. It, was. it was a formidable, he was alone. This man was alone. Okay. And, and uh, he was there and uh, the night passed and that night he had a time of prayer. Somebody heard that prayer and wrote it down. If you ever get a chance, read that prayer. It's really something. It's quite a prayer. You're really crying out to God to do His will, be faithful. To uh, it, it's, it's really a touching prayer. And that strengthened him. He was very clear. And the next day he went in and uh, they asked the same questions again. Everybody's anxious for the answer. And so uh, he had to give an answer. In fact, uh, I was before I left this morning, I said, you know, I, I'll try to tell the saints what he said. And I said, I can't do that. So I, I hurriedly uh, went and found my book on Luther. And uh, uh, so I'm going to read you what he, what he says. Yeah, I marked it right here. Uh, okay. <clears throat> Here it is. Uh, Eck, that's John of Eck, replied, Martin, you have not sufficiently distinguished your works. The earlier were bad and the latter worse. Your plea to be heard from Scripture is the one always made by heretics. You do nothing but renew the errors of Wycliffe and Huss. How will the Jews, how will the Turks exult to hear Christians discussing whether, whether they have been wrong all these years. Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death and gave us as an inheritance, and which now we are forbidden by the Pope and the Emperor to discuss, lest there be no end to debate. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther replied, Since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Amen. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. And the words, here I stand, were inserted. Those words have never been clear whether they were spoken or not. So... Uh, they're the famous buzzwords of that speech, but we're not sure if they were really there. But anyway, either he said, Amen, or he said, Here I stand.
Actually, they're about the same thing, aren't they? <laughs> same thing. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is this is. Uh, you see, I've got to finish this first page, uh, page front and back before lunch. And you can see, it's always the same problem. I, I know. Y'all are just lucky that there's something called lunch that will shut me up. <laughs> but you see, in covering one man in detail like this, even though the rest of them I can't do this, the flavor of it and the spirit of it, it transfers automatically to the others. Okay. So I'm not going to spend all that much time, and of course I, with some I'll spend no time, but I want you to get the flavor and the feeling of it, okay? I wish I had time. All of these will inspire you. With most of them, I have these personal books, and I've read their biographies, uh, uh, and they're so inspiring, you see. The thing out of the Reformation is, the, is, is uh, they paid so much to accomplish so little. Do you follow me? They gave so much to just get so little that it's inspiring. It, it, it'll really humble you very much. Okay? Okay, now, can you all hear me okay? Okay, good. Uh, then after that, he went into exile because he was truly then... Uh, in fact, if Charles, who had promised safe conduct, had not kept his word, he'd have been killed at, at uh, Worms. But he, he held to his word, and so Luther escaped, got under the protection again, and went into hiding at, the, at a castle at uh, Vartburg, and he stayed there one year. And during that year, I, now I don't have time to go into it, that is a very interesting year, when he was alone. And during that year was when he put the, the uh, New Testament. Uh, no, he put the whole Bible into German. Not only, not into formal German, into the German vernacular that people, the common person could read it. And, and it could be this was the greatest thing he did in his whole life as far as what he, you see. This thing went all over Germany and people read it. And they read it in the light of having cast off Rome and been brought into the, <coughs> into the truth about justification by faith. Uh, then the spreading, uh, swift spreading of Reformed teachings, they were going everywhere. I've mentioned how they were just flying all over the place and people were reacting. Whole cities and towns were throwing off. Uh, Rome was in serious trouble. And if it wasn't for the Turks, they would have, they would have really come crashing down on them. Then uh, Catherine von Bora, uh, she was a nun. Uh, a whole convents of nuns getting this truth, getting, the, getting these papers uh, printed and in their hands and finding out what was going on. They just blew it all off and, and uh, they would petition Rome, release us from our vows and so forth, you know, which was kind of stupid, but they felt they had to do it. Release us from our vows. And uh, they would, you know, finally, uh, one of these convents she was in, they, they, uh, she came out. And uh, Luther took responsibility in some cases for some of these nearby places and uh, tried to uh, uh, get these ladies back into civil life. And one of them uh, uh, it kind of backfired and they, uh, 
developed a, an attraction for one another and they eventually got married. Her name was Catherine Von Bora, an ex-nun, he was an ex-monk, and they both, <laughs> they got, both of them broke their vows and got married, you see. And, and I have to mention right here, there were several things that were very strong that the reformers stood up against. One of them was the unmarried state of the clergy. They said, this is against the word of God. And they saw that this unmarried state of the clergy propagated all types of immorality because they were, because they were required to be uh, unmarried celibates. Then uh, uh, this produced all kind, of, all kind of things that were immoral. Okay, To the point that in some of the cities... Uh, this is a little shocking, okay, so I hope your ears aren't too tender, but this is history. I want you to know the truth about it. In some of the cities in Europe, the law of that city, which that's the laws were usually citywide, you know what I mean, not, uh, not so much a national law, but a city law, like a city-state. They, they required the priests and the monks and so forth to, ha- to keep concubines for fear of their own daughters who lived in the same city. For the sake of their own daughters, they, they passed laws that the priests and monks had to have concubines, you see, so that their daughters would be safe. Concubines is the ancient word for today's prostitutes. Okay. So, you see, this is the way it was. You believe me. You... you, you, you I just don't have time to describe. When I say the atrocities of Rome, I don't just mean a few little things. The whole system was rotten to the uttermost. Okay? And, and when the cover was blown, I mean, uh, it's like you, you, you turn over a bucket that's been sitting in the yard a long time, a long time and you see all these worms and bugs and things underneath. I mean, it really was ugly. Okay? Uh, then political entanglements, uh, he got into, uh, Luther tried to avoid political entanglements, but he couldn't totally, and he got tied up somewhat politically, but he himself never became a politician. He never got into politics, he himself. He just stuck with the Word of God, but he felt he was obligated to make some political statements, and he was the one who, who put down the Peasants' War because he felt that was against the Word of God and uh, should not be, should not be uh, tolerated by civil authorities. But he had become so powerful by, the time, by this time the civil authorities would not fight against the peasants' revolt without his word. So he was on the spot. He said, he said yes, it's your civil uh, uh, obligation to do it. So he got caught anyway. Anyway, I won't dwell long on that. But, and the last point here is he had a miraculous life in that he lived. He, he should not have lived. People died for so much less, and he lived to the point that he died a natural death uh, at a, quite an elderly age, you see. The boldest and the most used reformer because he didn't get into political things except when he was forced to like this. He shouldn't have done this. But considering the light of that time where where the state and the church were totally one and there was zero separation, 
he, he was pretty remarkable in his ab ability to stay away from it. You follow me? Okay, now you see it? Now, at the same time, this guy named Ulrich Zwingli from Switzerland was raised up. And that's why I put down here, simultaneous light, okay? Simultaneous light. Uh, <clears throat> Zwingli saw the truth of, the, of uh, justification by faith all on his own, apart from Luther, at the same time, two great men of God, one in Switzerland and one in Germany, saw the very same thing. Uh, Zwingli wasn't the robust type of person Luther was. He didn't go around busting things and throwing things overboard, you know what I'm saying? But he was, he was very intelligent. He was a master of Greek and Hebrew. And he was very strong that if you couldn't prove it by Scripture, you could not accept it. And so he started to... Uh, turn all of, uh, of uh, Switzerland or that part of Switzerland was, which was his native tongue uh, into the Reformed teachings and then he heard about Luther and, and so forth and was amazed that something was happening on earth that really matched what his work was and yet they had never had communication before. Okay. Uh, at that time, there was uh, Switzerland. There were Swiss mercenaries for Rome. By this, what I mean is uh, Switzerland was famous for her little armies, and that would uh, be sent by the Rome to fight battles here and there. And he became he, he became very uh, distraught about this because he began to be he began to speak very strongly against Rome. No doubt encouraged by Luther, he began to speak very strongly against Rome. And he was never a monk or a priest, so he had it. He he was even stronger. Uh, I mean, his, his progress was faster. He didn't evolve quite so lengthy like Luther. And he started to speak strongly. And uh, uh, the thing was, in the setup of that day, the pastor of a particular town was the battlefield leader. So if you were once sent to war, the pastor became the captain. Okay. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? But this, and he said, how can we send our people somewhere to die for that which I'm totally against, Rome? So he began to have great problems with this, okay? And uh, so he, began, he continued his strong teaching, and that was at Zurich. And this, uh, as his teaching got out, as it was printed, and as it was uh, sent out, of course, uh, it says an inflamed papacy. They got totally inflamed, sent people. And what Zwingli is really known for in history is that three different times there were these huge debates where uh, I don't have time to go into each separate one, so I just jumble them all together and tell you the principle. He had three large debates, I mean, uh, w uh, where he challenged the Roman Catholic theologians and scholars to come and prove by Scripture uh, anything that he's taught differently or any of the things that he was practicing and and he would challenge them and he did this and and in every case no one listen not only did he win but he won uncontested they were so fearful of his knowledge of the truth that they were afraid to even speak up lest he would just cut them to ribbons with the truth so he won every great debate and this just totally swell the confidence in Switzerland. Switzerland is not this little, at that time it was, it was quite, quite uh, 
influential in all of Europe, okay, at that time. Uh, so uh, this sola scriptura, that's Latin, means uh, only scripture. In other words, the, the, the byword was don't introduce anything into these debates unless you have scripture to base it on. And that shut everybody's mouth because they, they weren't based on scripture, right? So he won. And the confidence sword. In fact, at times, he was a very emotional man. At times, he would say, anyone, I'm waiting here. I mean, he would wait. He would, he would, I beg you, this is your chance. Don't say another day. I'm here. This is the time. Uh, if you're going to bring it out, bring it out. And he was making, he was making fools of them all. But he wasn't, he wasn't trying to do that. He was begging him. He said, if you can show me where I'm wrong, I will change. If you will just show me from the Bible, I promise I will. I mean, he just went to every length. He says, I will change. I will recant. I will do whatever on any point if you will just show me the error from the Bible. And no one could do even one thing against him. And so at the end of all this, he, he, at every time he would just break down and weep. And he would... And then he would uh, give a public prayer and thank God for the mighty victory. And this spread all over. This was, this was happening. And see, not just Luther and Zwingli. These are the guys who were in the public limelight. But other people the, that they were in a lot of communication with, were do, I mean, it was, it was just running over Europe. Okay. Uh, the overthrow of convents and the nuns of uh, Konigsfeld, that's quite a story, but I don't have time to tell it. <laughs> With Luther at Marburg, they finally met and they were arranged and they had the, what's called the Lord's Table Controversy. And uh, it was Zwingli's reformed concept of the Lord's Table versus Luther. And all I can say is, is this is a very, very... Uh, Intrigue. It's interesting to the uttermost time. I wish I had the time. I don't. But basically, they met. And Luther, as much as he was used by God in certain ways, he was narrow-minded and, and somewhat pig-headed in some other ways. Number one is he never fully came out of the sacrament of the Lord's table. What he did do is he threw off this nonsense that the, the bread turns into the literal flesh. Remember we covered that last time? And the wine turns into blood. Remember I told you how this one person put arsenic in it to test out whether the, whether the priest really believed it or not? <laughs> anyway, anyway, Luther said, no, no, that's too much. But he said the, there is the, he called it the real presence in the elements so that you really were partaking of Christ in some kind of mystical way. Okay. Zwingli uh, took the view that actually we take today and that became the common Reformed view, and that is that they are merely symbols of the body and the blood of Christ and that Christ is experienced, you know, in your personal life and this is a symbol that the Lord gave, like baptism is a symbol, you see, of, of an experience that must take place internally. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, anyway, Zwingli had so many scriptural arguments, and Luther 
didn't have one except he wouldn't budge from this one verse. He, he said, the verse said, this is my body, this is my, you know, this is my body, this is my blood, and so forth. He, uh, he would not budge from this view. And he wouldn't open to any other interpretation except a literal one. So Zwingli would say, well, yeah, but the Lord would say, you know, I am the door. But he didn't mean that he was a literal door. I mean, he, he actually won all the people around that were in that uh, convention uh, accepted Zwingli and company's view. But Luther wouldn't do it. And he... For some reason, for some reason, he just would not give in. And furthermore, the people who organized it were so disappointed that they didn't come. They thought this would really unite the Reformation, and Luther wouldn't have anything to do with it. You see, this is this this is how all these things split up. Oh, you see, just these little things. You see, today we have a Lutheran denomination just because he wouldn't he wouldn't agree with Zwingli. Uh, anyway, eventually he wouldn't even recognize him as a brother. This was the utter, this was way too much. See, he was really caught in his flesh at this point, and he was so you could say he was so embarrassed. I think I think you could say he was so embarrassed by his by the failure to logically and intelligently win the debate that. He just got into a frame of mind where he wouldn't even consider him a brother. They begged him, well, at least be brethren in Christ. This, everybody needs to know this, and this will help everybody. He, he, got, he got really out of it, and he, he failed. He, he blew this one, okay? Uh, that's, that, I don't want you to make Martin Luther out of something superhuman. What he did was really what he did, and what he didn't do is just, you know, where is his failure. But that which remains, that's what, what really brought the Reformation on, you see, was his a stance against Rome and his teaching of how you can get saved. Okay? Uh, then, guarding the Reformation political confederation, uh, Zwingli, unlike, unlike Luther, Zwingli felt that they had to merge the church and the state so that the, the state could never overthrow the church, okay? So that there was a merger. They, he, act, he, he was in the wrong dispensation. He was, he was like the kingdom age is going to be when the Lord comes back. He thought that's, that's the way it should be on earth, not a separation, okay? But th he really felt that there should be this kind of working together. So he tried to make these. Uh, he tried to make a political confederation out of all of Switzerland, which was full then of what we would call reform cantons and Catholic cantons, or little provinces, or you know, different names uh, that are used for those things. And so there began came a lot of strife. Some of the cantons in Switzerland were reformed, and some were Catholic and so forth, and they started fighting. And finally, he was compelled. Uh, one of the Catholic uh, cantons uh, attacked one of the Reformed cities in a certain canton that was nearby, and he still felt that it was his duty to fight uh, with arms to protect the faith. And so at this point, he became not just a pastor, but a general, and he led the men into 
literal combat against the Catholics for the sake of the faith, and he was killed in the battle at seven to one odds, and uh, Zwingli died on the battlefield fighting for the Christian faith. See, he, he was fully into the, into the uh, political mindset that the kingdom of God should be on the earth, mixed with the earth, not separated from it. And he never threw this off. So his accomplishment went up to a certain level, stopped, and then he was a product of, of his time and age. You follow all that? Okay, you're doing good, and you're going to make it to a lunch. Amen? Amen. Okay, now, I'm going to really start going fast, so uh, hang on. Okay, hang on. I've got to finish this, and I want you to appreciate it. Tonight, tonight you're going to get all the, all the good stuff. See, we're just going to have all uh, Scripture and uh, oh, just wonderful points. But uh, you need to see the background. Okay, the rise of the persecuting Jesuits. I'm not going to take time to go over this, except to tell you at this time, because of the extremities that Rome was being forced to, a uh, society was raised up called the Jesuits, and their main uh, purpose at that time, this is not today, their main purpose at that time was to strike out all heresy. So this is the time in history when all of the, the burning at the stake and all of the tortures and all the things were taking place under the Inquisition led by the Order called the Jesuit order, okay? And uh, these are some of the groups in Europe that had turned to the Lord and uh, that really caught it as a result. So Waldenses, Albigenses, the Hussites, the Lollards, and others that were not quite so uh, famous as these, okay? Now, uh, now we go to, to France, or French Switzerland, which, uh, would tend, which was French, okay? Uh, then we have William Farrell, and then under him, John Calvin. They go uh, hand in glove together. First of all, William Farrell, uh, his, his biography is very in interesting. He was, a, he was a bold preacher, and uh, he didn't care who thought what. He, he just had a one-track mind. He wanted to preach the truth. Uh, split the wood and let the chips fall where they will. He didn't care about his own life. He didn't care what they did to him. He didn't care who cared about what. He just he just uh, let it rip and uh, take the consequences. That was his attitude. It, it was so inspiring to read his book. It's so inspiring. You know, you just uh, you you see how weak things. Uh, can get in your own life when you just don't become an absolute person. He was totally so absolute. Okay, so he was a bold priest. He preached anywhere, everywhere. He just, at any excuse. He, uh, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a refined teacher. He wasn't a great intellect. He was just a bold, reformed preacher, okay? And he would preach on a top of a rock in front of a, I mean, you just name it. He would, uh, you know, he was bold that way. Okay. Then, of course, you know, if you do that, you get stiff opposition, right? And so they uh, started to really persecute him. And uh, he didn't care. I mean, he, you know, he, he suffered a lot. But he just got right back up and preached, preached harder, you know. Just like Acts. Just like Paul. You know, they got really slaughtered and, you know, treated so horribly in Philippi. And they just hopped up and went to Thessalonica and took off again, you know. Uh, this was just their life. And uh, uh, Pharaoh was a real carbon copy of that. Uh, then, costing Rome money. Uh, <laughs> the monks were losing their source of income, and the, and the clergy 
we're losing their source of income because you see people if they don't believe in it then they're not they'll quit giving to it right and so they they were losing uh, the money to sustain this elaborate system of convents monasteries thousands of clergy people I mean they did nothing except they just entered the convents and did nothing except live off other people they were really the bums of the Middle Ages. <laughs> Sorry to say, they really were. So anyway, he was costing Rome money. These and the, so they were really getting mad at him, and and and, and they beat him. Many he he had numerous personal beatings, you know, where uh, they just wanted to teach him a lesson. Uh, they, they were beating the wrong guy. Uh, if they had cut out his tongue, that would have maybe helped. But they only beat him. Uh, this just made him all the more absolute. So he continued on. Then uh, he ended up in Geneva, which is on the French side. Most of you know where Geneva. No, you probably don't know where Geneva is. Geneva is at the end of Lake Geneva. This is a famous place toward France, where all the international things are held. Switzerland is a is you know the famous neutral country of the world, and so all the. Thing people don't want to meet in my country or your country that gives you an advantage, right? So they go and meet in Geneva, Switzerland. That's where the new, so that's where all the bank accounts are, right? That's safe, right? You can always count on Switzerland to not divulge information to anybody. Okay, so Geneva uh, became the center of the Reform the second center of the Reformation. Of course, where Luther was was the first center, and then the second center became Geneva. Okay, it became really the main place where the Reformation was carried out. Uh, and he was there, his preaching was received, uh, they really liked him a lot, and uh, a lot of fruit was born in that city. So he stayed in Geneva. You might say Geneva became his little baby. Okay, a lot of prosperous work there, a very fruitful field for the gospel. And a plot of poison, this was a very interesting device to poison he and two of his other uh, uh, friends who were reformers. And uh, uh, anyway, it all failed. Uh, uh, he escaped that. It was a, it's a miraculous story how... Uh, he was supposed to be at this certain dinner, but something kept him away and so forth, so he never drank the stuff, but somebody else did. Anyway, he, he, uh, he, he escaped this plot on his life. It's, I thought I'd have more time, but I, I don't have time to tell you the story. Then, this big thing happens is he meets Calvin, John Calvin, enter John Calvin. Remember this guy's name. He, his effect on the Reformation is second only to Luther. Okay, John Calvin became a big, big name. And at this time, I, I put all, awesome persuasion here because at this time, Calvin, who was a young student, young by meaning, meaning he's only 28 years old, but he was a theological student as well as being just highly intelligent. He was a theological student. And he was passing through Geneva on his way uh, north. And he bumps into Farrell, of course, both of them being reformers. And he bumps into Farrell, and Farrell saw in Calvin everything that he wished he had in himself. He was just a bold preacher. Calvin was not a preacher. He was a scholar, and he was an intellect, and he was a theologian. And and uh, to tell you the truth, to tell you the truth. Uh, uh, Farrell was 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 in awe of Calvin. 
He was just odd by him. That's why I put awesome persuasion. He was an he was odd by him. Even though he's only 28 years old, he he just thought this guy has got it all together. And by this time already, uh, uh, he had written down here where it says the Institutes of Religion in, in 1535. Calvin had already written this famous book called the Institutes of Religion, laying out a whole systematic way to practice the principles of the Bible. Okay, at that young age, he had it all laid out, and and it was like Pharaoh. It was like Pharaoh's realization was, I can preach people, I can I can stir them up, I can uh, turn them out of Catholicism, I can bring them to the truth about how to get saved. But beyond that, I'm at a loss. I, uh, if, if if somebody like Calvin doesn't come along, this is just going to be a little partial job done. But this guy was. Uh, he was a scholar. He was a teacher. He, he, I would tell you, most of all, he was an administrator and an organizer. And so uh, uh, he was quite strong. He was strict. That's why today when the word Calvinist is mentioned, it mostly doesn't stand for predestination, which is Calvinistic in nature. But mostly it stands for strictness, harshness, holiness, uh, things very much along this line. If someone says, I'm a Calvinist, you, you, you're a little nervous with them, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, Calvin was, was this kind of way, and he was fully imbued with a concept, you see, that the city and the state should come under the dominion of the church and not vice versa. Uh, for example, I, I put here parallels. Forget about the parallels, okay? We don't have time for that. Calvin's concepts, you see that? A theocratic state, this is where God rules the state. Not the church, but the state. Okay? The church and the state essentially were the same thing. God rules the, God rules the state. So he had a theocratic state concept, and the citizens were compelled. Compelled to what? Compelled to submit to that. So in Geneva, this system of religion was practiced, and that was that you practice the laws of God. And if you didn't practice them, uh, uh, you, you would suffer punishment. Okay? So you were compelled to do it, or you would be punished. Just like you would be punished if you broke a civil law now, you would get a civil punishment in our civil, civil state and civil city, right? Well, then, uh, if you didn't keep the laws of God and so forth. Now, these were reformed laws, you see. But you can see why in the Reformation, how in coming out of this, some only came part way, you see. And in a sense, though they switched from the authority of the Pope to the authority of the, authority of the Bible, they still kept very old concepts about how uh, God relates with man and uh, they, they didn't see it as the church they saw it as the state do you follow me okay so in Geneva you see here uh, uh, in fact you had to take an oath you had to take an oath to do this you could not say a profane word inside the city limits of Geneva can you imagine such a, a city on earth no profane word if you said it you got fined if you said it again, you got maybe fined again. If you said it a third time, you probably got banished from the city. 
to say nuts. If you it's just just one stealing, you've had it. That's serious. You're gone. I mean, no bail, no, nothing. You're out of here. See, if you did something really bad, of course, you might get cap, have capital punishment. I mean, it was a serious thing. That city became, that city became the quote holiest city this earth has ever known, Geneva. Even after he died for 50 years, it had gotten into the fabric of that city so strong that for 50 years after his death, you still couldn't hear a profane word in that city. The whole city was a theocracy. Can you imagine that? It was a model <laughs> of a theocracy. Only one problem, there was no reality there. So that's what brings me to the next point. Strong leaders and weak followers dash banishment. Does that make sense to you? The leaders were strong, but the followers were weak. They couldn't take this kind of strong, rigid thing, you see. They threw off Catholicism and they got out of the fear of that, but they didn't have reality to come in. This is typical of the Reformation. It's a throwing off, but it's not a real replacement. And they did not have a reality coming in to replace this. Therefore, the people ended up uh, living in their flesh. They threw off the fear of things, but they had no reality, so they it ended up uh, people wanted to eat, drink, and be merry. And they couldn't take these new laws because this wasn't reality. To This was another form of restriction to them. You see? So they banished Calvin. Then he left, and then that didn't work out well, and so they begged him to come back, and he came back, and the, and the city of Geneva became this type of city. If you liked it, you lived there. If you don't like it, you move somewhere else. And Geneva stayed this way. And Calvin wrote many, many books and things uh, here. And, of course, he matured as he got older. But there was still this mixture of, of spiritual things with secular things. Okay, you follow me? This will be more clear when we interpret uh, Sardis later tonight. Okay, I think you can see uh, what, what occurred there. John Knox of Scotland, uh, he was really something. I, I've got his biography too. It's been years since I've read it, but it's very, it's very interesting. He was bold. He was like Pharaoh. He was a preacher. He wasn't intellectual. He was just a preacher. And he just, uh, he just uh, took Catholic uh, Scotland and he just began to overturn it. And he and uh, he and others, and so it it hung in the balance, back and forth. Will it be Catholic? Will it be Protestant? Back and forth, back and forth, and finally, uh, through his efforts and others, uh, uh, Scotland turned to the Reformation. And if you go down here, uh, there's a lot of things here. He was banished. Uh, he got to meet Calvin, and they that, uh, that's one of the basis of his becoming so solid in the Reformation. Uh, the Queen's controversy is a long diatribe between he and the Queen who was thoroughly Catholic and so forth that I think he basically won. Then this concept of the Presbytery came out that was established in their state religion. And this is the uh, beginning of the Presbyterian Church here in Scotland. Okay, The Presbyterian Church as we know it today in America has its roots in the uh, Church of Scotland. Now, hurrying right along, the Reformation in England, this is the important thing. Let's see. Whew, that's really here. Okay. In England, I see this first point. It says the printed word prevailing. What this means is that in England, it was not an individual 
that turned the tide, but it was the massive amount of printing that went out. There's not an individual star in England like there are in some of these other countries, okay? Most of the countries, like Scotland, had a star, Germany had a star, Switzerland had a star, France had a star. Um, but in England, there was numerous really solid men, but the big star in England was the printing that went everywhere and turned that nation. Now, first of all, the, in, in number 10, I want to talk about the vacillation of the throne of England. England, and, and this is in secular history. Actually, I believe I was more impressed through Churchill's history. He has a four-volume set on the history of the English-speaking peoples. You see the vacillation of England back and forth from what? From Protestant to Catholic, Protestant to Catholic, Protestant to Catholic, depending on who was on the throne. Okay? And usually one followed the other, reacting back and forth. Okay? Okay. Henry comes to the throne, and he's Catholic. Okay, so he's King Henry of England, he's Catholic, and he, but he marries uh, Catherine of Aragon, who's, that's in Spain. So she's Spanish and she's Catholic. So this is all working out fine. Only one problem is after 17 years of marriage, uh, they have uh, five children, uh, and only one of them lived uh, to be an adult. And her name was Mary, meaning they had no male to be an heir to the throne after 17 years. So Henry decides that will never do and he would like to remarry and this is where Anne, Anne Boleyn comes into the picture. He uh, gets kind of infatuated with this person called Anne Boleyn and so he wants to annul his marriage with Catherine after 17 years. But it can only be done, he's a Catholic, it can only be done if the Pope consents. So it's sent to the Pope, I mean the request is sent to the Pope, and he sues for divorce, but the Pope hesitates because the Pope right before that Pope had made a, he'd given out a, a you know, a, a canon or a statement that uh, that uh, divorces were not to be accepted, and so if he if he granted Henry a divorce, he would overthrow his successor, and that would uh, hurt the prestige of of uh, the Pope, or at least of his office. So he was in a quandary. So he did nothing for seven years. Finally, Henry got totally exasperated, and he threw off the Pope altogether. The Pope hesitated, and so Henry just cast him off. And Henry took the place of the Pope in England. Divorced Catherine and married Anne and had a son and had several children. Later divorced her and married Jane Seymour. So a lot of this was just because he wanted to keep getting married, I think. But anyway... Uh, he became, he became the head of the church in England. Do you follow me? But the rest of it, but he didn't throw off the Roman Catholic, uh, the rest of it. He kept that, he just replaced the Pope. This was the seed of the Church of England, which in this country is the uh, Episcopalian Church. This is a church, if you're an American, you know that there's no, especially the high Episcopalian, you know there's a high and the low Episcopalian. Right. The high ones, they are the closest ones to the church in Roma. Right. 
in doctrine and especially practice. He became the head of the church. And do you know to this day who the head of the church is in England? Church in England. The Anglican Church it's called. Who's the head of that church? Queen. queen. Whoever's in, who's ever the queen or the king. They're still the head. See, the seat is right here. But they still had an elaborate system of priesthood and uh, clergy and so forth. Very, not exactly like, I mean, it evolved. They got away from Rome, but they retained, I would say their Reformation efforts uh, only went about that far. They got out, but they didn't get out far. Okay? If you're an Anglican, I'm sorry. I don't take it personally. But you're very close to Thyatira. That's why if you go to the Anglican church, you probably could go there your whole life with, with a chance that you would never hear a clear word about how to get saved. Okay? So... Uh, we have a new thing arising in England, which was a, which was a, a kind of a, a mixture. Then the Puritans arise in England here, and uh, amazingly, uh, the, the Puritans are called dissenters, and they were called nonconformists. So they had three words. Okay, they're dissenters, Puritans, or nonconformists, and they are against popery and the Church of England which is the Episcopalian church in this country. They threw them both off and they just wanted to go back to the what? Pure word of God, lead a pure life and, be a, and live a holy life and be separated from all the things. And so that's why they became tabbed as Puritans. Okay? And uh, they did this, but they began to be persecuted, and this caused them to flee from England over to the continent, mainly in the Denmark area. They were not safe there, and so this caused them to flee to the New World. And so the Puritans are the pilgrims. The so-called American pilgrims are the Puritans fleeing from Europe for religious reasons and for conscience reasons. They landed on the shores of New England, and the early colonies in the United States of America were Puritan colonies that had very strong reactions against anything of Rome and of the Church of England. Okay? They wouldn't celebrate Christmas. They wouldn't celebrate Easter. They w in fact, they not only wouldn't do it, they would fine you if you did. They were very strict. They wouldn't put up with anything. Right. Somebody ever bothers you? Just tell them. Go read the history of the Puritans. We, we look like cream puffs compared That's to them. Right. Anyway, this country was started by these guys. We're the we're the protesters, even against the protesters, started this country. Strange. Okay. Then the Reformation takes root in England. Then England, after a while, it became the real place where the Reformation uh, took hold. William Tyndale uh, is it, was it one of the shining stars. He translated uh, into English, into the English uh, language, the Bible. It became very widespread, and he was martyred. Uh, I just don't have time. It's it's such a touching story. His his story and how. He got the thing translated, and his martyrdom is so touching. Anyway, I'd like to spend more time with uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, B and C. These two guys were friends growing up together, so I wish they could be listed together, but uh, for 
uh, clarity, I put them separate. Okay, John Wesley uh, was raised up in England. Now, we're skipping over to a whole other century. We're into the 1700s now, okay? Uh, and England has definitely become Reformed by this time. Uh, not Catholic, but, but Reformed. Okay. Uh, the condition, uh, his brother Charles, of course, John and Charles Wesley. Charles was the singer, okay, and the songwriter. He wrote over 600 hymns. Uh, so the Lord really used him in that way. Uh, the condition of England at that time was that England had sunk really low. Again, the problem is when you throw off something but you can't replace it, the, it's like a little formula. You throw off something plus no replacement equals <laughs> the flesh. You see? That's why the law keeps you until Christ comes. Don't throw off the law until Christ gets here or, or, you'll, the, or the, the result is the flesh. Do you follow me? Okay, that's, that's... England was sinking morally into degradation. Then, at this time, uh, there was a holy club raised up by some of these students led by John Wesley and George Whitfield at Oxford University where these bright young men were. And this was a holy club that they wanted to uh, set an example and be against all of this kind of uh, uh, thing that was really ruining the country of England. And so they set up uh, uh, methods and, and uh, rules and things that you had to follow. To, to be a part of this club in good standing, okay? And this carried on after they left Oxford. And in fact, uh, here I said, the, the Imitation of Christ. One of the books they went by was this book called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas A. Kempis. And they determined that all, you know, this is, <clears throat> this book is a book telling about a lot about how Christ lived and acted and so forth. And they were trying to copy or emulate that lifestyle, you see, to be a holy person like Christ. And that was kind of their, their guideline was this book. So as a result of all of this, John Wesley became a missionary, very devoted, very zealous and so forth. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, his missionary, where he went was to the New World, especially the southern part around Georgia and the South Georgia, South Carolina area. He went there. The only problem was he had no assurance of his own salvation. So in preaching salvation to others, uh, he, were, he, was, he was more miserable than them because he himself, as holy as he was, did not have assurance that he was accepted by God. Now, you see, that's, can you see how fervent, how zealous, how sacrificial he was? And he was so miserable. So finally, of course, uh, after, after all of this labor in Georgia, uh, he comes back, I, I, down here it says, a, a defeated return. It was aboard ship that he was so defeated, so down, wondering what would ever become of him because even though he had done his best to serve God, he had no assurance that he had been accepted by God. And, and on board, he met these Moravians who had received the gospel and, with assurance of salvation. And they had no problems. They had no fears. And Wesley was shocked by these people. And, he, and, and it made him even more in despair. You know, like, he just, what's wrong with me kind of thing. And, I mean, they just loved the Lord. And they were really, uh, 
with Moravia, when we get to Philadelphia, we'll get into Moravia. They were a special area of Europe, okay? Then when he finally got back to uh, the continent, he, uh, he was really, he didn't know what to do. He's no longer a missionary. He's, he, 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 I mean, he just, he's despairing of everything. And he finally goes to this meeting somewhere. And I, I used to even know the name of the street. It was on it's Alder, Alders, Aldersgate Street, something like that. Anyway, uh, he goes there and uh, he's sitting there listening to an exposition from the book of Romans. And he hears the truth about justification by faith. Either chapter 3 or chapter 4, he hears about justification by faith. And at that time, he saw what he had never seen before. That, that it was not works, it was faith. And, and, and later, it was like, while he was listening, he, as, as whoever was speaking, he was getting released. And, and uh, he just felt this tremendous comforting sensation. And later he described it. He says, all I can tell you is just a warm glow came into me that night and has never left, something like that. So he renewed preaching and, of course, uh, was highly successful. And uh, he preached. He just, on horseback, went all over England preaching, back and forth, back and forth, until, the, until he was 88 years old. And he, 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 he read his Bible and meditated while he was riding his horse. And he just did, that was his life. He said, quote, I do indeed live by preaching. And he just did this his whole life, back and forth, crossing, reading, and preaching. And then uh, when he saw that, uh, you know, something had to be done as he was getting older, he raised up these societies uh, and these societies were groups for young men to do who wanted to serve the Lord, and they became known as the Methodists. Okay, They themselves, Wesley still clung to the Church of England, but he mostly labored totally outside of it. Uh, these young men, because they would have to keep these certain methods or rules of holiness and conduct, they became known as Methodists. This was the beginning of what became known as the Methodist Church, which for a century or two was very strong in evangelical work, which also in the last century has totally lost uh, the evangelical burden and is now a very uh, secular type of church. Not 100%. There are exceptions to that, but in general that's, that's the case. Okay. Uh, George Whitfield, who was his contemporary, was at Oxford with him, and he didn't go through the turmoil that Wesley did, but he began, he became, he got converted and became a, a very impassioned preacher. Uh, the difference between them was Whitfield was was so passionate, so fiery, and, and Wesley was logical. When he would preach the gospel, he would just present the facts of the gospel and just and just appeal to, I mean, isn't this clear to you? Isn't it? And he had tremendous success doing it this way. And Whitfield was a very impassioned person. I mean, he's just, uh, he, he, uh, he was a totally different type of personality. And, and uh, people respond, both people responded to both kinds of presentations of the gospel. And both of them led thousands upon thousands of people to Christ. Uh, then what Whitfield inaugurated was this thing called outdoor preaching. And uh, this, is, this was really a breakthrough because all the preaching up until that time was in a sanctified place, uh, in a sanctified building. 
and if you did it any place else, that was, uh, you see that some leftover stuff from Thyatira, right, was still part of the Church of England. So uh, Whitfield broke with that. And this horrified Wesley when he found out that Whitfield was preaching outdoors and not in a sanctified place. And, and yet the common people were ready for this and they flocked to him with a lot of crowds uh, would gather around. There was, uh, I got here, a huge crowd. Sometimes up to 20,000 people would meet him in the fields. And they had these huge crowds and he would stand up on, they'd build something for him to stand up on. And a lot of his close uh, friends that would go with him would spend the whole time in the meeting prostrate on the ground right around the platform praying the whole time for all of these thousands of people out in the field. And uh, a lot of things happened. People got saved, all kind. I could, I could tell you some stories. The unusual happenings that means there's some unusual stories here. I wish I had time. I, I want to tell you about the trumpet player. Oh, it's so good. If we have some time later tonight, I'll tell you about the trumpet player. Okay. Then there's a disagreement with Wesley. Uh, Wesley and Whitfield work so close. They even kind of uh, would substitute for one another. If one another, if one of them got sick or something like that, the other one would go and preach in his place. Uh, yet they came into conflict later in their life uh, over this disagreement of predestination versus free will. Whitfield was for predestination, and uh, uh, Wesley was for free will. That doesn't sound like it's too big a deal to you, but at that time, if you couldn't, you, you kind of took your stand on one side or the other, and uh, this, this separated these two people in their later days from having a close working relationship. Okay. Uh, pardon? Somebody had a question? Okay. Uh, Well, uh, if I get into this, mm. let me move right on quickly to C.H. Spurgeon. <clears throat> Spurgeon, uh, we go, we jump one more century, and he was the kingpin in England uh, in the 18th century, not counting the brethren that were raised up, which we won't cover until we get to Philadelphia. Okay, he was converted when he uh, was uh, a teenager. He was. He was the boy wonder, the boy preacher. Started preaching at age 17, and he preached for 40 years, and he died at age 57. And by that time, he'd become known as the king of preachers. And uh, one thing he did is he was determined to get the things he spoke into print. And so he did two things. He, did, he, he developed this penny press where the message he spoke was recorded verbatim in longhand, then put into type and printed and sold on the streets for a penny. He always wanted to do this, and he was this was very successful. And also, all of his uh, Sunday messages that he gave were taken down verbatim and printed and put into volumes. I have those volumes. Uh, it was actually, it was, it, uh, it was my attempt. When I went to college, this, this is a little personal. When I went to college, uh, this conflict, because I went to a, a, a Baptist college, this, this question of is predestination right 
or free will? What's the right one? See, predestination means God's already selected and it's not up to you. Free will means that it is up to you. Your will is free to choose God or not choose God. See, this was raging. This is a conflict uh, uh, in, in dorm rooms. I, I walk into many a dorm room and uh, just listen to this debate. And I, I determined to get to the bottom of this. And the main source I went to was C.H. Spurgeon in the, in the religious library at uh, uh, Baylor University. And his volumes uh, uh, on his Sunday messages are about, there's four of them that would stack up about that high. And the print is so small you can hardly read it. I mean, one page is uh, equal to probably uh, ten pages of our life studies. Okay. Anyway, I got, I've got all. My, my wife, uh, my, she wasn't my wife then, but at that time, uh, Judy was there. And, and, and sometimes, she, you know, if she was trying to contact me, she couldn't find me. And uh, where I hung out was in the basement where the library was. And I was reading all these things, especially this guy's volumes. I was very impressed with him. And, and uh, finally, uh, I, I had a birthday or something, and she gave me a... She, she bought me a set of these volumes. I still have them. Uh, and I read a lot of this. I couldn't tell you how much. Uh, I, I, I thoroughly understand uh, this conflict, predestination and free will in Calvinism. And, and uh, it, was, it was made quite clear to me through Spurgeon's writings of just how the thing really became a problem. And you have to realize at that time I didn't have the help of the recovery, which just in 10 minutes I could have been cleared up. So I, I waded through this. But in a, sense, in a sense, the recovery just confirmed what I discovered, okay, you might say. Basically, there's no conflict. You see, predestination is on God's side and free will is on man's side. You see, uh, Spurgeon finally brought it to this bottom line. He says, if you desire to be saved, then that's a sign that you're predestinated. Well, that, that's virtually or tantamount to being free will, right? But he believed in predestination. But he, his point was, if you desire to be saved, well, then that's proof that uh, uh, you're called, you see. So with him, it wasn't a conflict, you see. And actually, that's what we teach. Both of these, predestination and free will, are in the Bible. It's just that God knows. He foreknows everything. And so there is a predestination. But it does not preclude that you have a free will. You have a free will. If you perish, it will be your choice. If you're saved, it will be your choice. See? So, I don't know. Anyway, it took me a year or so to wade through all this, you see, just to get it. I got a lot of stuff while I was wading through this. But anyway... Uh, a lot of things. Just think, if there hadn't been a recovery to just make this so simple to me, uh, I could have I could have spent all that time and never known for sure, been absolutely confident. You see? Now, if somebody hits me with that question, I don't even blink an eye. I just it's so it's so simple. 
So simple. Okay, uh, the inner life saints, these all these tremendous people here are in the line that I would, uh, I would put toward Philadelphia so we won't have to spend time. Now, if we can just spend a few minutes, yeah, we can take uh, at least 11 minutes and talk about what happened in the New World, okay? In the New World, of course, the New World had a Puritan heritage, uh, came over, and then we have some prominent people raised up. David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, A.B. Simpson, R.A. Torrey, just to mention some. There are too many to enumerate them all. These are just more notable ones, okay? Uh, David Brainerd was a... I'm just going to give you a brief, okay? I just kind of... You can look at the outline, but I won't mention everything. David Brainerd started uh, a missionary work in the New England area, and uh, uh, he just was a true... He wrote a journal. I I had a copy of his journal, read it. It's very inspiring, very inspiring. But uh, his work with the Indians was, I mean, people would come out from the city and watch him preach to the Indians, and they would laugh at him. They really would. They thought it was so silly. And finally, some of these Indians started getting saved in their own tongue. And then some of the people who came out and, and started watching him started getting saved. And so a real revival broke out. Unfortunately, uh, through the hardships and rigors of his life, he took very, he did not spare himself anything. He lived very frugally and even uh, somewhat in disregard of his health. And he died, I believe, it, I believe he was 29 when he died. At least not more than 30. Okay. Anyway, uh, he died at the home of Jonathan Edwards, who was a young man also. And the effect of this man's life and his journal on Jonathan Edwards was very pronounced. And Jonathan Edwards took up the torch from David Brainerd and became a very prevailing preacher in the New England area. Not today's New England. New England then, everything up there was New England, okay. Uh, very prevailing. He became famous and he, his sermons became very famous. His most famous sermon, I put it in quotes here, is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You ever read that sermon? Oh, it's a, it's a Lapalooza. I mean, it, he had, you know, it's one of those where people would, were shrieking while he was speaking and he painted portraits of, uh, you know, uh, of being suspended uh, over hell by one, you know, thin thread of, uh, I mean, he, you know, people were just uh, hyperventilating all over the place. And uh, he became quite famous for this. But actually, if you read some other things about his life, that was just one message he would give on some occasions. He was really a very balanced, really very timid, kind of gentle, meek type person. Anyway, his great contribution was he established one of the very first theological seminaries for the training of serious-minded men who would give themselves to the ministry of God's Word, and that was Princeton University. Which today, sorry to say, is a bastion of liberalism. But in those days, when he was president, it was to equip young men to serve God by sacrificing their whole life. By the way, Harvard started that way too. Uh, Charles Finney was raised up. Uh, he was a New England lawyer, very, very uh, intelligent man. And he had a very unusual conversion, which uh, uh, I read a lot. I, I don't have these books. Like I, if I said it once, I don't ever give away books that are meaningful to you. 
don't ever do it. Make people read the books in your house and leave it and come back or something like that. Loan it out. Uh, take a hundred dollar deposit. <laughs> something like that. Because all these books, nearly all these books I no longer have, I don't know where they are. I just thought it's so good for me, it'll be so good for somebody. I never dreamed one day I might read it, you know, I might want it again. Uh, I lost it. I don't even have David Brainerd's journal. I don't know where it is. And I read that thing. I must have read it five or six times. It was so inspiring. Uh, Finney's great work was, uh, well, anyway, I don't even know where that is. As much as I read that thing, I do not know where it is. That's that's sad. Anyway, uh, he was converted. The thing with Finney is this thing. The predestination mentality, meaning that it's not up to you, but it's up to God. If God chooses you, great. If he doesn't choose you, well, there's nothing you can do about it. That mentality had pervaded New England and it was, all, was really entrenched in England itself. And he was raised up and he saw, the Lord commissioned him for this, and he started to preach absolute free will. He would not even strike a balance. He wouldn't even consider the predestination side. See? Which you shouldn't consider until after you're saved. You should not consider. No one should preach predestination while you're still an unbeliever. That's silly. You pre, you, you, it's up to you. But you are predestinated. But it's it, you have to you have to work that out by choosing the Lord. Right. You see. Okay. He just totally disregarded this and went totally and just did one thing. He he said no. It's absolutely your choice. If you go, he would use terms like this. If you go, if you live in hell for eternity, that's your choice. If you are in paradise with God for eternity, that's your choice. He would just like this. And people were just, uh, some of them, some of them had gotten so comfortable with being predestinated, meaning they didn't have any responsibility, that they would just, they, 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 they were persecuting. They didn't want to hear it because it meant they were responsible. They didn't want to be responsible. And he just started turning. These revivals broke out. And he started overthrowing this whole lethargy. That's why I put it here. This lethargy of it's you can do nothing that affects your salvation. He overturned the whole thing. Then he went over to England and he overturned the whole thing over there until people finally realized that it's your cooperation with God that's the key thing. Leave God's predestination. That's hidden knowledge. Leave it there with God. Since you don't know what's going on, you better take care of what you can do. That was his whole, that was his, that was his strong message. I could tell you a lot of stories. Of course, I've run out of time. D.L. Moody was a very famous American preacher. Uh, he was a Chicago shoe salesman. He got saved as a young man, was not received into his church because they didn't think his testimony was strong enough. That's back when uh, they interrogated you to see if you really had all the right answers, you know. They didn't think he was clear enough. But uh, before he got received into the church in good standing, he went and started preaching anyway. And he started leading a lot of people to Christ. Then he had this tremendous experience with the Lord that really changed his whole ministry where he was contacting the Lord and he was in such a strong prayer experience with the Lord that he had to tell the Lord to stay your hand, Lord. Uh, it was really quite something. He was praying. He was in the attic 
of a person's house. He couldn't even make it all the way home. He, the burden to pray was so strong. He stopped his walk home, went to a door, knocked on it and said, Ma'am, do you have a room I can pray in? And she showed him to the attic and he prayed there, uh, what all he prayed until he had to tell the Lord, I, I, no more, Lord, I can take, stay your hand. He was, he just, I mean, that, it was like, it was like the equipping for his ministry. It's like Jesus' baptism to start his ministry, you know. He really took off. Uh, then, then uh, of course, there was, uh, he became well acquainted and quite famous and uh, I'll never forget one part. I don't even have Moody's biography. I don't even have it. I do not have it. I couldn't lay hands on it if 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 my life were at stake. And I that was that was tremendous. Uh, anyway, uh, I just can't believe I did. That. It's disgusting. Anyway, uh, they had uh, one very interesting thing that I just remember from reading that book is this big convention of all these preachers about the thing was how to reach people. And Moody was disgusted with all these uh, concepts and ideas and discussions and so forth. And so at the time for the meeting in this place, this church building they were in, uh, he went out before the time of the meeting and they were going to continue to discuss, discuss how to reach people. Well, 5 o'clock came and everybody got off work, you know, all the common laborers in the city. And they were all, and uh, he stood up on a barrel, put a barrel up in the middle of the street and he started announcing, go over here, we're fixing to have preaching in a, a X number of minutes and go over here, find a seat, I'll be right in. He filled the place with people, went up there, preached the gospel. A bunch of them got saved. He was prevailing in the gospel. And while they were busy getting saved, these uh, other preachers were coming in to the meeting on how to reach people. You see, and he had just gone out, stood on a barrel, told them to get inside the thing and preach to them. And, and, and you see, he was like that. I mean, he, he was really like that. Then uh, one person a day, he had this rule, his personal rule, that he would not let one day pass by unless he spoke to somebody about Christ. Even if he was in bed, he would get out of bed, put on his pants, and go down to some street corner and tell somebody about Christ. I really liked that. And then he went to England, uh, and he was very, very prevailing in England, too. So was Finney, and so was Moody. From America back to England, they both had tremendous success, a lot of revivals. Uh, Billy Sunday... uh, he was a real popular preacher, but no time for him. A.B. Simpson was uh, in this century and very, uh, very influential. He uh, was with the Christian Missionary and Alliance Church, and he's the one who really had the clear revelation of, of the key to everything is just the person of Christ. He wrote this famous track, you know, called himself. It's actually his testimony. Uh, he, he had tried so many methods, uh, ways toward getting something spiritual that he had read about, but he, he knew he, he himself did not have. And then one day after he'd failed, I mean, he'd even lo- I mean, he'd lost his health four or five different times just trying everything. And then one, one time the Lord spoke to him, everything you're seeking, you're seeking just things. The answer is me, a person. And from that point on, he became a preacher of just one thing, Christ as everything. Christ is a person. Christ is everything. He's the one who, who wrote this hymn here, Christ Only Christ, in our hymnal. It's A.B. Simpson. 
Yeah. Christ, only Christ, you know. And that's all he... That's, that was his whole message. Oratory. Uh, I don't have Oratory's book. It's unbelievable. That guy was something. Okay. Uh, then, finally, I'd like to point out, as the Reformation developed, you had all of these prominent missionaries from England, first of all, and then from America, uh, led by the two most famous of all, I believe, is Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd, who have tremendous stories. I just would give anything if I had time to get into their stories. Uh, some others. But England became the place that sent the missionaries out first. They were really... They were the really fortress of the evangelical movement for all of the 1800s and for the first part of the 1900s. Uh, I'm of the belief, and I, I'm in accordance with a lot of fundamental thinking, that it was when the, is, is when the country of England uh, quit aligning themselves with the Jews in a strong way that they lost God's blessing. And America kept it and the blessing came this direction. And as far as evangelicalism, as far as uh, uh, many things related to the Christian life, uh, America is the place that it's safe. It's no longer safe in England. England is a very different country than a hundred years ago. The whole country is more like today's San Francisco. So liberal, so loose, so throw off restraints, you see. It's really changed. Anyway, uh, uh, Hudson Taylor was from England. He established the China Inland Mission. Uh, I don't even have his biography. His is one of the best. Uh, if you ever get the chance to read Hudson Taylor, it's written by A.B. Pearson. It's tremendous. No, I'm sorry. A.B. Pearson wrote George Mueller. I don't even have George Mueller's biography. I, I gave every one of them away. The stupidest thing I ever did in my life was gave all these books away. Who has them now? I bet they're nowhere. I bet they don't even exist. They're probably in, in a dump somewhere. I have no idea what became of them. I'm almost sure they're not being read. Okay. Now, okay. What I've tried to do, saints, is I've tried to give you a feeling of, the, of how the Reformation came in and where Sardis is. Now, when, when we come back, and we'll break, but at four, we'll come and meet, and then we'll get into the Epistle to Sardis. And I think you'll really enjoy this. Okay?